everybody, and welcome to Full Marks, a Marks Brothers podcast. I'm Ian Boothby. And I'm David Dedrick. And, and this, I just want to say one thing. Oh, oh, what? What? Is, what are you, uh, you going to say? Happy uh, Harpo's birthday, which oh. is today, November 23rd. There you go. This is the day that we are recording. It is not the day you are listening to it at uh, all. Obviously. You might be going like, wow, that was a while ago. <laughs> uh, you know, future people, the things you could tell us. Yes. What, uh, what secrets do you know that we don't? <laughs> Please write. Like the weather. You would know that as sure, a secret and such. Anyway, um, yeah, so happy birthday to uh, Harpo, and sorry for uh, not saying happy birthday to all the other Marx Brothers as their birthdays have passed while we have done this podcast. Yeah, I wasn't uh, keeping up very well on that stuff, was it? No, no. Well, it doesn't make any sense, because we record these usually about two weeks before I know. they come out, right. and it's... Uh, anyway, you know what I say? I say, you know what, I've had enough. This is our last show. That's what I. That's what I say. <laughs> every day is Harpo's birthday. I'm going to say every day is our last show. <laughs> every day is our last show. <laughs> In a way, um, thank you so much. Uh, if you've been along for the ride the whole time here on Marx Brothers, uh, full Marx Marx Brothers podcast. I got to say the whole thing. Otherwise, uh, it's the name of another podcast about Carl mm. uh, Marx. Yes. <laughs> and for those of you that have been confused uh, and have been listening, going, when are they going to talk about Karl Marx? Yeah, that was it. That was. This is the one moment. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so we've gone through all of the Marx Brothers films. Yes. Uh, chronologically. We did. Uh, the premise from the show is, you know, I know you know it, but here it is. Dave is more of a hardcore fan. I'm more of a casual fan. I haven't seen all the Marx Brothers movies. I've seen many of these for the first time. Dave does a bunch of research. He tells you stuff about the Marx Brothers. Then we go through the movie. Uh, we voice our opinions. Then you tell us your opinions. Ah, it's great. It's been it's going so well. We're ending it. Right now. We can't have something that works this well. No. That doesn't uh, suit our Canadian sensibilities. Success? No, sir. Shut it down. That's right. Looks like things are trending upwards. Time yeah. to quit. We're going to have to review Pez dispensers or something in the future. So, yeah, it's something that's unpopular. But we decided with our final episode to uh, turn it over a little bit to you uh, of, uh, of uh, if you have any questions or anything. And yes, indeed, you, uh, you wrote us. So they this did. is kind of, as we say in Canada, the odds and sods. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and and whatnot. Uh, so, what are we going to be talking about on today's show, Dave? Normally, I would say, "What are the Marx Brothers up to?" But they're well, they're kind well, of done at the end of their film career, or were they? Or were they? They were up to things, but um, what were they up to? That's a bigger question, and mm -hmm. and that's one of the main questions that we got was was um, tell us more about the Marx Brothers. And here's it's you know this was the hardest show to do. I thought this like, one. Yeah, like, and we're only like three minutes in. Oh yeah, <laughs> this to get ready for. Oh, okay. Because the other ones, you know, I was eagerly looking forward to watching every movie that we did. In fact, basically, we would do the show, and the next day I would watch the next Marx Brothers film. Oh, okay. Like I was like so excited to get to the next film, but this show isn't really about the Marx Brothers. It's about the end of the Marx Brothers and their career as no longer the Marx Brothers. You know, so it's not quite as interesting to me because it's not. The Marx Brothers anymore. It's it's three individuals who uh, sometimes converge, but mostly worked separately from each other. Right. And their careers were quite. How do you how do you say it? They they continued to work, but they didn't work at the pace that they worked when they were younger. They were much older by the time you by the time you get to uh, Love Happy. You know they're already very very old. And well, by the well, time how is very old? Would well, very old be as so, old as we are now? <laughs> older than us because well for instance uh chico was the oldest he was born in 1887 mm -hmm. so that's 
three years, so that he would have been 63 years old when he was doing Love Happy. Oh, wow. Okay. Which isn't super old, no. but in terms of like being a, you know, a comic and doing physical you know, stuff in a movie mm-hmm. and having to do it a few times per scene and... You know, it just got harder and harder. And by the time you get to, to um, no, that must have been old. Yeah, 63. So by the time you get to uh, one we're going to talk about today, the incredible jewel rob- robbery, mm-hmm. he is 72 years old doing that. Okay. Well, what is the incredible jewel robbery? We're teasing that a little bit. Well, what is what are you talking about? It was a, a, a TV show that they did uh, near the end of the 50s. Okay. And, and we'll get to that. We'll get right. To but it. when you wanna... mention, I just want yeah, to sure, know sure. what we're talking about. Sure. And so... You know, that's part of the problem, not problem, but part of the issue is that, you know, for him, of course, because of his, you know, Chico's always dire economic straits because of that he had a gambling problem, a terrible gambling problem. He, you know, he always needed to work. But Groucho and Harpo, particularly Harpo, who wasn't, you know, despite the fact that he was an incredible entertainer, was not someone who aspired to be on the stage when he was growing up, unlike, say, Groucho, who actively sought out to become a singer on stage and went to auditions and auditioned to become a singer, sang in an Episcopal choir. He was not an Episcopal, he was not Episcopalian, you know, but he really wanted to sing, so he joined this choir. He, you know, he went and auditioned. He went on these terrible, you know, cheap, low-budget tours uh, that, uh, you know, anyone who was started a career then would have had to do. You know, but he did that willingly. Say, unlike Harpo, who, you know, was kind of foisted on him when he was unemployed and became a member of the what then became the Four Nightingales, right? That know. was their that was their original name. That's right, and so you you know so Harpo had you know he dabbled here and there. He did a little bit of television. He did some commercials. You know he just did little things that he wanted to do. He didn't do things that he didn't want to do because he had plenty of dough in the bank and didn't have to work if he didn't want to. So the things that he did were just out of his own interest or out of his own desire to. Do something, you know. I've been playing golf all year. I might as well go and do something. Have you know, be myself. You know, one avenue, of course, was cut off to him, which was radio. He really couldn't do a lot of radio. He did do some radio appearances, but obviously they were musical yeah. or him honking a horn or, or whistling or whatever. So they were very limited what kind of guest he could be in that situation. Television obviously was more of, of, of an avenue for him. But I thought we'd start the show uh, just by reading a few emails that we got from sure, listeners. Sure, that sounds good. Can I ask because, you like a broader oh, sure, question before sure. we get going? Because something we've mentioned many times is Chico's uh, gambling problem mm-hmm. and how they kept doing all these um, movies, basically, sometimes past the point where they wanted yeah, to, yeah. to help him out. Mm-hmm. Do you think that helped him out? Is your opinion that <laughs> helping him out? Because it seems like... Mm-hmm. When you're going, well, you seem to have an addict here. Yeah. What we're going to do is is continue to give the addict what they need to continue their addiction, and yeah. the addict keeps going. Mm-hmm. Is 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 that a good thing or? I well, I agree with you. I mean, we got movies out of it, so I'm ben I'm benefiting uh, <laughs> out of unfortunately this benefiting. person's mm-hmm. you know uh, crippling addiction. Yeah. Um, but it it it's not something I've heard addressed before where. You know, they've anyone said, "Hey, and they shouldn't have done that." Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, I mean it's hard for us to judge because you know, it's family. You know, so they don't want your family to hit rock bottom. Yeah, yeah. You just, you know, you were always, you know, Grocho said, um, you know, in the nineteen early nineteen seventies, he said, "We, you know, we perf- we basically made movies." I'll just I'm kind of paraphrasing what he said. He basically said, "Near the end of our careers, we weren't." We weren't funny anymore. We had writers who weren't funny, who just gave me lines that they thought would be funny if I said them quickly. 
We basically did movies near the end of her career in order to support Chico, who we continue to support for the rest of his life. Right. He says, but we never fought. We always got along, you know, and that's, you know, something that's very rare in what he called a nervous business. Yeah, to the point where, like, again, I'm just taking this as an outsider looking in. Mm-hmm. Maybe one, maybe a fight would have been pretty good, you know? <laughs> maybe knows? there's a, some point when yeah. you've got a guy who's, like, you know, just bleeding money, mm-hmm. who's got a real problem. Yeah. You go, I don't want any trouble, so we're going to just keep giving him giving him dough. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I saw, I forget what the game show was, but Chico was on it. Mm-hmm. and uh, And the host just asked kind of casually, you know, are you still living off Groucho's money? Uh-huh. And it was this really like, whoa, that's kind of a mean thing to say. And also, someone should have said that, not on TV by any means. Yeah, yeah. But like, you gotta, you mm-hmm. gotta stop this. It's a question. Uh, but no, instead, instead they didn't. And and, I, and again, we got movies out of it. So we got movies out of it. I just feel a little bad about that. And I, every time I see Chico, I'm I'm kind of worried about Chico. Sure. And I go like, he's amazing. He's talented. <laughs> it's it's great. Did he want to be doing this thing though, or is he doing it because he has no choice? Yeah, it's hard to say. Um, you know, he. Well, I wouldn't say it's hard to say because he didn't kind of naturally move into into show business of his own choice. Unlike say Harpo or Gummo, who are pushed pushed into it by their by their mother. Yeah. Chico, who had left home. Who was kind of roaming around doing odd jobs, you know, working as a song plugger, playing playing piano in, in kind of unseemly places like, you know, kind of low low bars and brothels and things like that. He he kind of of his own choice moved into performing and started, you know, performing with other people and not with the with his brothers. It wasn't until he'd kind of reached a point where he realized he wasn't really getting anywhere and they were going places that he he started he joined in with them. And so I feel like that's it was something that he was kind of drawn to that he was a natural performer that he was a very good performer I think like when you watch him in the movies and, and things he's a he's really good oh yeah very charismatic you know Absolutely. and he's also and he's also really good in a dramatic role like he's mm-hmm. really good in room service I think yeah where I don't think Grocho is quite as good as how good Chico is in that mm-hmm. in that no role. I'll agree with you on that for sure you know I think he does a really good job playing that character. That's not to say that I think the movie is super strong or that it couldn't have improved in places. But I think what the material he had, he did really a really good job I'd with. say if there's someone who was the heart of the movies, and it's not really movies that have a lot of heart to them, mm-hmm. it would definitely be Chico. Yeah. Chico is the guy who who will, actually says he'll give you the shirt off his back. He'll mm-hmm. always he'll give like the sad eyes. He'll mm-hmm. like worry about the, the leads and how they're sure. doing. Sure. You know, and Harpo's in his own crazy world and Groucho's in his own crazy world. Sure. But Chico is the most grounded in reality. Actually, actively in, trying to help. Yeah, in the movies. Yes. How much that was in real real life is is yeah. kind of doubtful. So once again, really good acting. Yes, does a good job. So you know, I don't, and I kind of I don't like to judge the past too harshly because you know I feel like we look at it from we have a different viewpoint of addiction than than they would have had then. You know, so I'm not even sure what their viewpoint of addiction was because it's so much in the past now that mm-hmm. that'd be hard for us to understand how people looked at alcoholism, drug addiction, gambling, just things like that that were commonplace in Hollywood. All those things were commonplace: gambling addiction, right. drug addiction, alcohol. Those were all things that people went through, and you know, they either came on the other side or they didn't. And how people approached it, I don't think there's an idea of interventions then. I don't think there's an idea of of it, it, Treating it as an illness is something that people needed to, you know, treating it as a mental illness or treating it as an illness, you know, like those sort of, you know, like the 
and there was humor about it too. Like, you know, there's the oh, sure, sure. there's a Charlie Chaplin short where he's working in a sanitarium. There's all these people with, you know, shaking hands and stuff like that, like making fun of people with delirium tremens and things. And so, yeah, I guess, you know, it's hard for us to to judge and maybe you don't want to acknowledge it because if it's seen as, if it's seen as being a terrible thing to be an addict, then you don't want to call your brother an addict. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you know? I don't think it's he just the... really, really like the horses and the dogs and cards. And whatever else passing by that he could throw money yeah. down. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay. So and it, was, and it was a lifelong habit. I mean, there's a story of, of Sure, that's what addictions are. <laughs> yeah. And that and there's a story of Harpo, you know, as a as a young teen, uh, when he got a gift of a watch, he took the hands off of it so that it wouldn't be pawned by by Chico and he could keep his watch. Yeah. You know, it didn't work the way it should, but at least he could keep it. It was his watch. Mm-hmm. You know. And so it was obviously a long term long-standing problem that everyone just kind of moved around and sort of maneuvers and stuff. Yeah. It's an interesting question. It's one I can't answer. And like I say, I don't, I don't think it's fair to judge people from, from our understanding. I mean, the same way that to make fun of people how they tried to cure cancer a hundred years ago seems a little unfair. <laughs> yeah. I'm not making fun of people. I know. I'm just, trying to cure cancer. But you know what I'm I mean, just right? concerned about, yeah, yeah, you I know, know, Chico and like, know. you know, as things went on and went on, it's like, was he okay? Mm-hmm. Did things get mm-hmm. worse? Yeah. yeah. You know, was he happy or how, how did he, you know, I, I've never heard like an interview with him about how he felt about things. Harpo speaks, obviously. Harpo wrote about his experiences, you know, but not yeah. really that much the emotion mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Groucho would, you know, you could you read between the lines of how he felt about things, yeah. and then on talk shows he'd be more open. Sure, but I've never sure. heard Chico talk about. Oh, I enjoyed doing this, or you know, this was great, or I'm glad we did all this together. Or whatever, you know, he's always the other, the one to the side who they were taking care of because he had yeah, this problem. Yeah. And if he was interviewed, he was he, he would be very evasive about his private life. Yeah, that's what interviews. it seemed like on the game show. Mm-hmm. He didn't feel super. Uh, well, again, he was in character a bit too. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, what are you asking him in character if Groucho's <laughs> paying for him? What are you doing? Knock it off. Yeah. Yeah. So I think yeah, there was an element where his life was private, and that element was not. Was just not talked about. Yeah, you know, and that's the way it was. Very so good. Let's, let's read some questions. letters. Let's read some letters. All right, let's get the old mail bag out, and we're going to dump the letters out here on the table. And uh, <laughs> Dave, most of these are addressed to Santa Claus. Oh dear. Oh, I think we this shouldn't is have, really set in podcasting precedent. We shouldn't have told everyone that our our uh, postal code was H O H O H O, which only kind of works in uh, Canada. Because uh, the Americans have the uh, we are in numbers. Canada. We are in Canada. We are. Yeah. Wait a second. Let me just check these letters. Oh, you're right. <laughs> yes. Very good. Passed and answered. And by the way, the North Pole is in Canada. So if people are writing to the Santa Claus, they have to use Canadian. Okay, wait address. a second. Is the North Pole in Canada? Yeah. So is Can- it? Yes, it's in Canada's Canadian soil. What? What? Uh, what part of Canada? The north part of Canada. Well, I, I would understand that. Yeah, yeah. What's What's it closest to? The top of the world. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you. All right. Good. You know what? I've had enough of this. I'm just gonna go to the mailbag then. <laughs> All right. Because when you when you get up there, you look down on creation. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's for our carpenter pass. That's for our carpenter. Yeah. <laughs> if I were a carpenter and you were tolerant of these kind of jokes. <laughs> All right. Good. Uh, this is a letter from uh, Ken Holtzhauser. Hi, Ken. And Ken has been a regular correspondent throughout the show, and I appreciated hearing from Ken. He's written many times to let us know what he thought of each film and things, and it's it's always great to hear from listeners. And he says, hello, Ian and David. Here's a question for the final episode of Full Marks. All right. Do you have a strong memory slash connection to You Bet Your Life? 
I discovered repeats of the show as a kid around the same time I first discovered the Marx Brothers, and it really imprinted Groucho Marx as the Alpha Marx to me. I watched every night and marveled at Groucho's caustic and quick wit. Then he adds, This has been a great sidecast. Thank you for re- reawakening the sleeping dragon. Ah? Uh? I'm just reading what he said. <laughs> okay, because our Marx other Brothers podcast love. is yes. called Sleeping Dragon. <laughs> <laughs> Sleepy Dragon. And that was from Ken Holtzhauser. So thank you, Ken. And I'm going to pass this to Ian, who mm-hmm. I think of as more of a game show aficionado than myself. Well, I do remember I do remember the show, watching it at my grandparents' house and, and, and enjoying it. And I would like all the jokey game shows. Mm-hmm. You know, even though sometimes, I not sometimes, but as a kid, I would not get the jokes at all. But I can understand there's a mm-hmm. comedy and things mm-hmm. are going along and people are laughing and they're all having a good time. Uh, I, liked, I liked Groucho more than I liked shows like Hollywood Squares. Uh, and now, in retrospect, looking back, I can see how Hollywood Square is someone like a Paul Lynn. It's yeah. very funny, but it's clearly pre-written material. It's it's just set up joke, set up joke, set up joke. And that's yeah. what most most things that were comedy back then were. I can't think of anything else that was like Groucho, which was this conversational. Mm-hmm. Like, clearly, he had some jokes in the chamber sure. loaded up of yeah. like, what a, what's, what's this guy do for a living? Well, he's a farrier. All right, then well, I got, you know, this... Yeah, I got the same jokes. A bunch of horse jokes here. Sure. But then a conversation would happen, and then you could tell that he went off script and he's mm-hmm. he's just jamming and it's just this casual calmness yeah you know which is which is quite different from the sharp sharpness of his movie persona it's a very different groucho sure. but it's a groucho that definitely works i think much better for television which is a more relaxing medium than mm-hmm. uh movies where you want to go to see action happen and uh, uh bigger things but and I think a lot of comedians didn't make the transition to television well because they kept doing big things. And Groucho was able to like, I'm going to take what I do. I'm going to make it calmer. I'm going to make it smaller. But it still was very biting and uh, and enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when someone got the secret word, oh, it was very exciting. <laughs> very exciting. I watched it for a while in my teens. So I don't feel like it really imprinted on me. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, played as reruns on a, on a local channel either after school or or I had to, you know, if I was at a holiday or whatever, I might see it. I can't remember right. exactly when it was on. My one vivid memory of it is that there was an episode that featured the, the kind of uh, absurdist cartoonist, uh, Virgil Parch, or Vip, okay. as he was called. And so he was a, he was a contestant on the show with a, with a lady. And, you know, he didn't go on there as a, as a, as a celebrity. He wasn't, he wasn't well known. And so Groucho was asking him about what, what he does. And then he says, I'm a cartoonist. You know, I do, uh, you know, cartoons for magazines and stuff. And he goes, well, what's an example of your cartoon? And he says, oh, well, I had a cartoon where there's a man chewing his way through the table. And the waiter is asking a woman who's sitting there, is this man bothering you? <laughs> and Groucho is totally deadpan. And he says, can you make a living doing this? It's a good, it's a yeah. good bit. And Parch, you know, plays along. He's quite, yeah, it's he quite good. It. Yeah, for sure. And it's And so I saw that and I thought it was, you know, it was, a good show or whatever. And it wasn't until maybe, you know, maybe 10 years later, I found a collection of Virgil Parch or VIP uh, collection of his cartoons. And I'm looking through it. And then I stumble upon this cartoon of this man chewing through a table towards a woman and the waiter asking, is this man bothering you? Uh-huh. And I went, oh, this is the guy I saw on You Bet Your Life. This is amazing. This is one of those weird little funny con- connections because I didn't really, I didn't go out and seek out his cartoons. I just saw him on a on a show and thought, okay, that's a person. And then you know, this is this weird. Later on, coming around and discovering his cartoons and really enjoying them, and then finding this one, oh, so good. There seemed there was like three Grouchos. There was the Groucho who you got from the movies. 
that very sharp version. There was the You Bet Your Life Groucho, which is a very casual, okay. uh, but also but also sharp in his own way. Sure. And then there was the somewhat meandering, but then would like really nail it version that would be on talk shows. Okay. That you would sometimes worry like, oh, oh, grandpa's gone off the, oh, wait, no, here he's back. No, he's got it. He's he's sure. on it. Sure. I was just looking to, because uh, I, of course, remember the Bill Cosby revival of, of it and and Bill Cosby to me borrowed so much from Groucho Marx with okay. the cigar, yeah. all the gestures, and then to me David Letterman then when he started doing his using a cigar as a prop, he borrowed so much from Cosby that mm. you know see the cigar thing. But I was like, I thought there was like one other revival of You Bet Your Life, and there was in 1980, and that was uh, Buddy Hackett. Oh, it, which doesn't that seems like the wrong tone. Or sure wrong does, kind doesn't of, it? Yeah, especially then. Buddy Hackett in 1980 is an odd, is an odd choice. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's hard to picture that as a conversational kind of avuncular show. And the other great thing about You Bet Your Life was the 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 MC George Fenneman, yes, who was sort of the opposite of of Groucho, this very kind of upright. He was a very good straight man. To yeah, him, yes, and which it worked, is what Groucho needs exactly, and he worked really well on that show. You had this person who was there to let's keep the show moving, yeah, and Groucho's there to let's stop the show entirely, yeah. And why are we going to do an ad now? Let's not even bother with that. Yeah, but when he would do an ad, the ad would be very sincere. Mm-hmm. You see the ads that he did for was it was it Desoto? Who, who Desoto was? Yeah, was one one of the right and one it's of those just, sponsors. Yeah. And you think like oh, this is going to be a bouncy, funny ad, and it's mm. for the most part just like it's really sincere mm-hmm. and it's like okay well that brings in the money and there and there you go uh but i i do remember enjoying it when i was a kid sure sure well we'll talk about it in a bit because i kind of want to go thought we were just talking about it already i didn't mean, i mean we'll kind of go into the backstory of it a little bit uh, later because i want to kind of go through um chronologically through, sure. through their, their, their after careers so our next back to the bag of mail back to the bag of mail this is a a, a letter letters we get letters we get, get lots and lots, lots of, of emails there we go. Sorry. No, it's fine. Through, through you. If you're going to do a joke, could you just let me know one's coming? <laughs> That's right. Uh, this That's is from... Uh, sorry, sorry. What are you saying? No, I was, gonna, I was trying to think of what the things they have like at airports where they guide the planes in. Mm. I would appreciate you picking those up and just the, tell me a joke's are coming. Yeah. What do they call those? Just, they're flashlights. I want to say pylons, and they're of course not, but they're, but they're something like that. They're, they're a flashlight with an orange... Yeah. Uh, some sort of orange... That kind of thing. ...thing on it. You know what I'm talking about. You know what about. they are. They're lightsabers. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. Yeah. Finally. Uh, this is from Mark Dobrovolsky. Hi, Mark. Who writes, hi, guys. Hi, Mark. Loving your bro shows. Oh, bro shows. Yeah. Well, bro shows before shows show bros. <laughs> That's what I say. <laughs> That's what we all say. From the, for the last one... How about a half leftovers and half Q and A? Oh, okay. A little of each, you know. Well, that's what we were trying for. Yeah, right? we're doing so. that. It's like you like because you like that for a pizza. Sometimes you like to have like a half something and a half something. We got for do. pizza. You like a half and half. You I like do. a two face pizza. Is what you like? <laughs> I like a two face pizza. That's, that's right. right. Sometimes I one I, side I, vegan, one side meat lovers. Just really mix mm-hmm. it up a bit. <laughs> vegan. Mm-hmm. So one side is this bare bread, and the other side that's is that's right. Yeah, <laughs> and you fold it over. You have a sandwich. That's called a calzone. It's delicious. <laughs> it is good. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> There you go. Uh, for leftovers, maybe Dave can summarize Grocho's career after the movies ended, or let us know ultimately what happened to Zeppo and Gummo in the years after their brothers stopped making stopped movie making. Okay, so if you could summarize Grocho's career, but please do it in a Grocho style song. <laughs> no, I'm not. Oh, <laughs> oh Grocho, oh Grocho, oh have you met Grocho? Oh Grocho, the retired actor. Uh, he um, he says actually anything you do, I'm happy with. These are just a few recommendations. I will get to that. I, I, I've taken that wow, under consideration. Wow, we are really pushing a lot to the end of the show. <laughs> yes, we are. Well, I just it's hard to 
because everyone sort we of wanted do a the same thing. Podcast called "I'll Talk About That Later." Yes, <laughs> I have. This is it. All right, the podcast for procrastinators. Wait, we well, okay. Uh, this is from Bob Olson. Hi, Bob. He says, "Good day, David good, and Ian. Good day to you. I am thoroughly enjoying your Full Marks podcast. Oh, thank you. We enjoy doing it. Having been a casual Marx Brothers fan and seen only a few films, I am now inspired to watch all their movies and otherwise learn as much as I can about them." I do have a suggestion for the final show. Mm -hmm. Just like Animal House showed us the futures of all their characters at the end of the movie, (laughs) you can do an audio version with the actual futures of the Marxists, including Zeppo and Gummo, showbiz, business, personal life, etc. It seems like that. uh, That's a we've doubled down on that request. He goes on. Everybody knows Groucho went on to "You Bet Your Life" in various talk show appearances. We were just talking about that. But (laughs) I, and I suspect many listeners, know very little of the rest. Then let's just let's just throw in an ad. This is an ad from Bob. Thank you, Bob. It checks in the mail. Also, I've listened to Completely Beatles all the way through twice and loved it. You hear that, everyone? Twice. Always been a massive Beatles fan, and your podcast made listening to their music even better. So much detailed information and insight. Keep up the great work, and I'll keep listening. I have a two-hour each-way commute, and your show helps make the time go easier. I know I'm late to the game, but once Full Marks is done, I will have to get into Sneaky Dragon. Yes, you will. Or, or don't. It's fine. We'll just keep making them. You don't have to get it. It's yeah. fine. It's fine. You are that. He, it's fine. I paid him for this ad. Okay. We had to blow it. Uh, he says, take care. What I'm hearing from that is that he doesn't like our Tintin podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the Canadian thing. I will find the insult in that compliment. <laughs> <laughs> this is from Chris Griffiths. He says, dear Sneaky Dragon. What? What? Yeah. what, what good. Okay. Like all right. We will also accept mail from that. Yeah. He says, I have a great what if question for your last Full Marks episode. Sure, sure. All right. I once heard or read somewhere that Margaret Mitchell, author of the novel Gone with the Wind, mm-hmm. said that she preferred Groucho Marx for the role of Rhett Butler in the film ad- adaption. Oh, interesting. Or adaptation, sorry. True or not, this makes me think that Groucho had a huge untapped potential as a leading man in a dramatic role. I would like to know whether you think this is true, and if so, what dramatic or cinematic roles can you imagine Groucho as plausibly having played in his lifetime? All the best, Chris. Um, no, I will. I'll give it that. I mean, you look at someone like uh, like a Robin Williams, okay. you know, who sure. you can't think of a more broad comedian, mm-hmm. you know, doing the Morkish stuff, and then you know was an amazing uh, dramatic actor. I think a lot of times. That is the case for uh, for for comedians is is they do make very good uh, dramatic actors and now it and and also they're very good in horror movies as well mm-hmm. because horror and comedy is quite similar. Um, yeah, a lot of timing involved. Yeah, in I'm trying to sure. think of now classic movies that you know what I could see I could see like uh, him. Uh, okay, I'll, all right, here here I'll give you something. Uh, how about Groucho in like? Uh, but it's a comedy. Nah, it's not a drama. What were you gonna say? What were you gonna say? I was gonna say The Odd Couple. I could see him mm-hmm. as kind of the Oscar okay, Madison a, uh, comedy, type 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 uh, character. Oh, okay. Let's okay. Well, Groucho. I will say that here's one movie I thought he would be good in. I was thinking of Inherit the Wind, which I th- okay. if I had the right, the one where talking about the Scopes Monkey, monkey trial. trial. Yeah, that's. Correct. I think he'd be very good as as like the reporter. There's the one character in the film who's the reporter who's kind of covering it. Mm-hmm. I think he'd be really good at that. But I also think he'd be good like as a lawyer character, like doing the Spencer Tracy part, playing the. A lawyer who's defending the, because I think you know Groucho has that you know kind of if you take away the grease bait mustache you know he has a very kind of respectable element to him like, you know sure and when he was younger he was a very handsome man I think he could have played like leading roles quite quite readily <clears throat> so if we're gonna like assume that in this what if he is not he did not become a Marx brother but instead parlayed his singing career. 
oh. on vaudeville into into a stage career as a, as a dramatic actor. Because mm-hmm. he did do some dramatic roles. Uh, he wasn't just a singer. He did do that show, that play, uh, um, uh, was it called like A Man of His Own or A Choice of something? Anyway, uh, it's the one where he, he acted in Montreal and, and then got the clap from a, from a prostitute. It was his first sexual experience. But uh, that was it was like a it was like a dramatic play that he was doing. So he did have that was a po- that was a possible avenue for him. So if we you know so he would have been like maybe in silent films. So he could have done like it's hard to imagine. Like when you say like he could have been like Rudolph Valentino, then you kind of smirk because you're like, well, wait a second, it's Groucho, you know. But wait, it's not Groucho though. It's him. So I don't know. I don't know enough old like. Older dramatic films. To... Okay, I'm going to go for uh, one from later. Sure, sure. Uh, I'm going to say, uh, "Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf?" I could really? see him as the husband in that. I could see him getting dark. Yeah, I could see him with yeah. the sharp things, taking the drinks, uh, smoking the cigarettes. Yeah, I could see him doing that. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Bringing the young couple home. Hmm. Secrets being revealed. Yeah. Oh, that would be good. Actually, I do like that. I'm just searching in my mind for. Uh... But I can't really think of anything. I'm sorry. I'm just yeah. But I could to... actually, I could see you know, Gone with the Wind, you know, because that's a that's an interesting character that I could yeah, I could I could see him like delivering those lines mm-hmm. and you know, uh, Rhett, but you know, I don't know if he could carry her up the stairs. Maybe he could carry her up the stairs. I don't know. Maybe he could <laughs> Scarlet up the stairs. That's a thing. It's all done with wires. Is it? <laughs> Is that how the Civil War worked? It was yeah, all wire work. It was all wire work. All right. Fair enough. Then okay. <laughs> No. no, I usually think yeah, a lot of comedic uh, performers can do uh, drama, and I could I could definitely see that, and I could definitely see you know speaking of which, I could see like uh, Chico doing some you know some some dramatic sure. stuff too. Oh yeah, I could definitely see Chico doing some dramatic. I think he'd be a very good dramatic actor if, except for the fact that he just did not have the attention span to to study and learn his lines. You know, and that was a constant problem in the films as well, where characters would actually actively have to tell him. What his character was supposed to be doing in the scene, mm-hmm. you know, by just telling him what he should be, you know, you need to get her to jail. Oh yeah. <laughs> All right. Here's what I'm going to say. I'll, I'll take a Peter Laurie out of uh, out of Casablanca. I'm going to put Chico in there. I think that's going to work fine. Okay. How about uh, how about? Okay. Here's what I'm going to say. For Groucho, mm-hmm. any role played by Fred McMurray, Groucho could have played really well in any one of those films. Double Indemnity, The Apartment, Remember the Night. All those films could easily have Groucho in I those was, roles. I was actually, as an avuncular. I almost said the apartment, but I was going with the Jack Lemon role in that. But yeah, it's interesting. We both went to the apartment on that one. I'm just thinking because that's what you made me think of, and I was thinking because I was sort of thinking like, who, what actor could Groucho be a stand-in for, rather than because like it's hard to think of him in a bunch of different roles. But if you think of him as as what kind of actor could he be? I think he would have been a very good sort of Fred McMurray style of actor who could play like. Once again, the word avuncular, like play a friendly, you know, very kind of father-like character, but also could have a dark side to his character as well. So right. you have a movie like Double Indemnity where he plays this, you know, where he plays Neff, this character who's very, is friendly, is a friendly guy and stuff like that. But he has sure. this dark side to himself as well, where he can get, he's tempted into this terrible act, you know. And I think, I think Groucho could do that very well. Chico, I think Chico, you could pretty much take like any sort of Walter Brennan role. And take him sure, out of sure, the movie sure. and put Chico. Yeah, in. you got to get him in nice little short short role. Come yeah. in, something happens. That's and, right. That's uh, right. Takes off. So you think of something like um, Meet John Doe, the Capra film. Mm-hmm. He'd be good in that movie, or he'd be really good in To Have and Have Not. To take the take the Brennan role in that film. So yeah, I think those. You know. There we go. Hope that answers. Done. Is done. That was fun. Um, this is from Edward Draginski. He says, "I hope I'm still in time to suggest some topics for the final episode of Full Marks." No, sorry. Okay, Sorry, next yeah. next letter. 
All right. Next person is. <laughs> Take dictation. Take a letter. No, what was it? What did he say? <laughs> I feel bad. He says, I'm. I hope I'm still in time to suggest some topics for the final episode of Full Marks. All right, hit me. Personally, I'm curious about what you guys what you guys think about a Marx Brothers biopic. Considering the upcoming Stan and Ollie film, this has many Marx, many Marx fans either pushing for the same about the Marxes or passing on the idea altogether. It seems daunting and almost impossible to me that four actors could somehow rein in the same chemistry that made the Marx Brothers so great in the first place. I'm almost embarrassed to see anyone even try, but another side of me would love it if it were done right. And I remember when they said Watchmen was an unfilmable story. So what do I know? I'm torn. Another did they say that sorry. after seeing it? Or did they say it before, before it was shot? Yes. They saw it like we did, the credit sequence. We said, this will be the greatest film ever. Yeah, we saw an early preview of the credit <laughs> sequence. We're like, this is going to be great. And then nothing else was like that. Yeah. Another fun request is who would you like to see direct the Marx Brothers if they were around today? Mm-hmm. Imagine Monkey Business directed by Wes Anderson or Duck Soup directed by Woody Allen. One of the things I enjoy on Full Marks, as well as Sneaky Dragon, is the informative research you share with the listeners about the making of the films and who was behind the productions. I think your extensive knowledge of film will make for some compelling choices matching the Marxists with today's directors. Thanks to you both, David and Ian, for such an enjoyable and worthwhile series. I can't wait to see what's next. That's from Ed. Oh, that's very sweet. Thanks, Ed. Thank you. Um, I, I strongly, 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 strongly dislike biopics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they have a they they attach a structure to uh, I think a story that uh, works for drama but isn't real, and so sure. I, it, it almost feels disrespectful when they do that. It's like it has to be okay. you know, you start in s- squalor, or you start with this, <laughs> and then it's the rise, yeah. and then it's the everything's great. We're on the top of the world, and then Uh-oh, it's third, oh something oh, oh no oh and no wait it, it's the end of the second act. That's right, and then it goes yeah you have to <laughs> assign the structure, and then by the end there's like some kind of not you know. Not maudlin, but it's you know it's yeah. it's it's you melodramatic. Have to, you have you to know, find a happy. You got to find place. a happy you know, spot to sort of go on, and yeah. then you know, and then it like ends, and then you go to the before the credits. We got to see like this person died doing this, and this person went on to blah, 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 blah. and it's just like that's not how life is. No, I mean, look, they're entertainers, and you're yeah. trying to get more entertainment out of them by just like mining their lives, and that to me just feels. Gross. I again with the Stan and Ollie biopic. Yeah. I'm sure they're doing their best, and it looks like they really care. Sure, but eh, just knock it <laughs> off. I've just seen too many of these, like about Abbott and Costello or whatever, and mm-hmm. it's like, hey, did you know they were really mad at each other? Do I need to know that? Do I need? I mean, it's fine. You can read a book about it. I guess it's sure. fine. Sure, but it's just like they gave you they gave you all this entertainment in film form. Yeah, it feels kind of rude to then like we're now going to recreate them in film form. Yeah, and and just show all these scars and what and you know you can do it right. You can make a movie about anything, mm-hmm. but it's just something that so does not interest me to see someone making yeah. up a fake history about these real people. Sure, you know. No, I agree with you. And and the what doing an impression of their comedy bits yeah. instead of their comedy bits. Yeah, we have them. Like if 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 okay, here's how you might be able to do it. Like say you're doing a Buster Keaton one. Okay. You do you do your behind the scenes Buster Keaton stuff, but the second that it goes to Buster Keaton's films, you show the films. Sure. You show the real things. You yeah. don't have, uh, and I think Robert Downey Jr. did a, a nice job doing Chaplin, mm-hmm. but he's doing an impression of Chaplin. It would be good, like instead of seeing Robert Downey Jr. do Chaplin, you cut to the actual Chaplin movies, and sure. that would go back to the maybe maybe that maybe, but even that. 
you know, to me. <laughs> well, um, I'll, I'll say I'll say this. Please if, do. If you're going to do a biopic of the Marx Brothers or a biopic of of uh, Charlie Chaplin, I think what you do is you choose a natural, uh, a, you know, a natural kind of one, two, one, two, three act structure in their actual career. So you don't want to do an entire life of them. You take a take a moment of their life that would fit that. So I think with the Marx Brothers, I think a a, a film about them going through this the grinding tour as a as a four you know singing as a quartet as a four nightingales and then their explosion into themselves in texas uh when they became a comedy act i think that would be an interesting story to tell because you could end on an up the up is that sure. they're now okay they've taken you know they've you know they're, they reach the lowest point where people leave the theater physically leave the theater during their act to watch a horse run down the street yeah and they just explode into this rage and they do this incredible comedy routine that blows everyone away the only problem is you have to make a a, a comedy routine yeah. that's like a marx brothers routine that's would blow an audience away but you then have and that's do, really hard and because doing one that would blow an audience away back then yeah but which would not be what would blow an audience away now yeah exactly yeah. so it'd be crass it would be somewhat probably racist it would be mm-hmm. uh it would be not be appropriate for now sure so you're gonna have to then what are you gonna do are you gonna tweak it for now yeah are you gonna, you gonna take out the italian you're gonna what, take out the irish what are you gonna do yeah you yeah. know it's a, it's it's tricky it's tricky business but you know what i mean right like yeah. so if i was doing I'd, it i'd say that would be almost not like a uh, Amazon or Netflix series where you've got to then really take your time and spread mm-hmm. it out, sure. you know, and not do the, it's got to be over in, you know, <laughs> 90 minutes. You know, I think like if I was doing a Charlie Chaplin film, I would choose to do The Gold Rush because what's most fascinating to me about that movie is that he shut it down for six months while he tried to figure out what to do next. Mm-hmm. He got reached a point where he realized he was stuck and couldn't couldn't think himself out of the jam. And just, so he just closed down the production and just stopped everything. And just took time off and and then came back to you and went, okay, now I've, I figured it out. And I find that fascinating that you would just, that you would have the money and then you would have the, just the, the you know, the, that artistic, you know, integrity to, yeah. you know, not just to force it, but to go, okay, this isn't working. Let's stop. Let's stop for a while. You know, like Buster Keaton did that, but I just played base, they just played a baseball game. And then generally someone would think of a, a gag that would keep, keep them going and they'd be like, okay, let's, let's do that. And we'll keep on going. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh it's it's a uh, I don't know I just that's interesting. Here's another fun thing about the Marx Brothers to me is that speaking of baseball is that they they they're when they were touring like their largest group of like guys touring when it was the four of them and they had like three other or four other guys you know dead dancers and other comedians in the act and and you know jugglers or whatever doing stuff they had a baseball team that would play other other mm. touring other touring groups and stuff like that and a pretty good one as well uh, unfortunately when one i think his name was paul yale who was actually the most acclaimed comic in the in the the troupe uh he left and they, he when he left he took a, a real talented baseball player with him so <laughs> their team kind of suffered from that oh that's interesting but yeah it was uh yeah that's um i don't uh okay so let's talk about okay so we're gonna play imagine if so here's the thing about when you directors. talk about directors like Wes Anderson or Woody Allen, is they're totally unsuitable as Marx Brothers directors, unless you're really happy with Duck Soup, where Leo Carey really imprinted himself on the on the Marx Brothers um, blueprint. Mm-hmm. You know, like he that movie is sort of partly a Marx Brothers film and partly a Leo McCarey film. Almost all their other movies are directed by people who are just there to point the camera and say action. Right. They don't have any personality that they're putting on the film. 
the problem with doing a movie with Woody Allen or with Wes Anderson is that their personalities are so much a part of their movies that you know you don't want someone as dynamic as the Marx Brothers in a, in a Wes the, Anderson the film. Woody Allen does change his style to suit the material. Sure, like sure. his movies are very very different. Sure, but he likes to write his own films, so it would be the Marx Brothers performing a Woody okay. Allen film. So we got to take the conceit about okay, because yeah. the people I'm thinking about also write their own movies. Okay, so let's take that conceit out, and we're just going like, what people do styles that would highlight the Marx Brothers. Well, okay, and here's a weird one that I'm going to sure, throw out. sure for Groucho and and Chico, uh, Aaron Sorkin, okay, because he's a talker, okay, he's a sharp back and forth, you know, and I often don't think that his dialogue is as sharp as Aaron Sorkin does, but <laughs> if 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 it was a Groucho and a Chico, you know, uh, doing a doing a walk and talk or a or a sitting back and forth. You know, and really zapping it back and forth, like that's the kind of stuff that he mm-hmm. likes to shoot. Mm-hmm. Is very sharp dialogue between two people, and having one of their banter fests, I think that that would be good. So, if they got Aaron Sorkin, they could finally, after so many years, do of the icing the political the political comedy. <laughs> what is that? Well, because he's you know like the white the West Wing and stuff like that. I think yeah. he's being very political, and yeah. so he'd finally they finally. You know, he could do an adaptation of 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 the ice, the George S. Kaufman, Murray Riskin play of the Ice Thing, which the which the Marx Brothers attempted to very good bring to the screen three different times. All right, and never succeeded. So there you go. There's your. I would also, your and again, I'm a I'm a huge Edgar Wright fan, and I think mm-hmm. one of the things that Edgar Wright does is he uh, he he makes everything matter and everything yeah, serves yeah. the words and the actions, and can also do physical comedy as well as verbal comedy, and really punch a joke well and cuts well. So I think he he'd be able to do some nice back and forth between the characters and then Harpo doing some shtick in the background yeah. and then bringing that to the foreground and what have you. See, there's lots of directors I love who I think it would be fun, like the Coen brothers or, or Sam Raimi and stuff like that. Yeah. But they're, once again, their personalities are so strong that do I want to see Marks with a film where the camera is like swooping down on them or following them around? Like, you know who would be the best director for the Marks brothers? Ron Howard, who's just a blank canvas mm. that you can just have do... You know, whatever. Like, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. You don't have to. He's just there. He just points the camera. He knows how to stage. He knows how to stage scenes really well. Right. His films are really well directed. But he doesn't. It hasn't. Doesn't really have a huge personality as a director that he puts onto the film. So I think someone like that is more more what I would think is. I'm going to throw. Uh, I'm going to throw a curveball at you. You can and say animated. Uh, Brad Bird. I'm going to give a. I'm going to give a little Brad Bird and do like a Marx Brothers film. Uh, animated with them, with them in it because Brad Bird has the timing, can do the physical stuff, mm-hmm. and can also do the verbal uh, back and forth. And I think he For could sure. do, make the visuals be interesting enough. I think so. Oh, that's a good point because there, if you're especially doing animated, you have the the benefit of of doing the storyboards. So you're developing the, but the he humor. can do uh, characters that are grounded enough mm-hmm. as well. You know, the Pixar folks can do the grounded stuff, but then and then and then build into the bizarre, which is what you need with the Marx Brothers. You need to make it small, then you need to make it big. Yeah, you know, you need to have the uh, scenes behind the scenes at uh, at Night at the Opera, and then we need to have them all flipping around on trapezes at the end <laughs> or duck soup, and you need the chaos yeah. that's going on in that. But then you got to pull it in tight. Pull it in tight, and mm-hmm. then uh, and have that weird courtroom scene, and then and now we go for uh, yeah, for, yeah for everything. Yeah. Oh, that's okay. That's good. I like that. He'd also do all the animals running around quite well, I think, like in Duck Soup. Sorry, I was just. I'm in my mind. I'm thinking of uh, of uh, other other directors who I th- who I think would be good in that. Hmm. Yeah, because I'd almost just be looking 
for me, it would just I would always be looking for people who are just personality less as directors. Because mm. I, you know, like I obviously I love Brad Bird movies and stuff like that. But I just wonder okay. if I want Brad Bird teaming up with the Marx Brothers. Here's who you want then. Okay. Uh, if you want someone who's going to like just shoot the Marx Brothers mm-hmm. and get the hell out of the way yeah. and just focus on the words, yeah. you want a movie directed by David Mamet. Because Mamet would... Once, once again, strong personality, though. No, 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 no. He okay. hasn't a strong personality. Okay. He just likes his own words. Okay. Like, he's a strong personality as a writer. Okay. But as a director, sure. it's all just uh, set the camera. Yeah. Shoot. Yeah. And we're done. There's nothing There's nothing he does. Yeah. In his, uh, if, like, uh, David Mamet on directing is one of my favorite books uh, about directing, which is just like, just just shoot it. <laughs> is it. Is it written well? Yeah. Then just shoot it. Mm-hmm. Are the actors acting well? Don't be fancy. Just do it. And that would be... Uh, so maybe know. Clint Eastwood would also be a candidate. Oh, Clint Eastwood also. Actually, Clint Eastwood, yeah, wouldn't be bad. As someone who Ooh. understands staging and things like that. But Go West too. Go West. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Back to the mailbag. Back By the way, to- folks, sorry, I'm drinking a glass and I've got ice in my glass. Uh, I'm so sorry for the sound of ice. Paul, I'm going to pronounce your name as this Paul. It's Paul Hagel. Hey, Paul. I just say that because I was friends with a Paul Haig when I went to high school. Oh, so I just have... shout out to that Paul as well. <laughs> he says, or he asks, or he says something. I'll say he's, it's a statement. <laughs> There's no question mark here, so I'm going to say he states. Very good. I was wondering about David's opinion about the Marx Brothers' separate appearances in The Story of Mankind and their final appearance together in The Great Jewel Robbery. All right, we'll talk about that in a Okay, bit. well, I don't know the first. That's fine. But I do know the latter. Okay. And this is from the last one. I think it's the last one. This is the last letter we got. Well, let me ask you from, this. Oops, is it the final one? Because if so, it is the last one. <laughs> That's the clue. It. It's. I have to turn the page and see. All right. Well, I'm very excited. Let's see. Is yes, the, this is the last one. All right. So this is from Vichy Chicago. Hello. Who? I hope you don't think... I hope you're... Forgive me for giving away the fact that your name is actually Kathleen. She says, I'm watching the Paramount movies again and just finished Animal Crackers. Very good movie. And each and every time I watch it, I get hung up on Groucho's exchange with Chico when they're when they're reviewing the forgery. It could be spinach. Look at all the sand. You mean it's an old spinach custom? I feel like they're riffing on something contemporary, but what? 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 It's driving me mad. The closest I've gotten is Roy Evans had a song about this time, an old Spanish custom in the moonlight. But I can't confirm it was in circulation before 1930. Any thoughts on what Groucho was referencing? Oh, I'm seeing a movie here called An Old Spanish Custom from 1932. Yeah, and there was uh, there's a Buster Keaton one from 1935. Okay, but that's bef- that's that's uh, bef- that's after the Marx Brothers because this Marx Brothers was 1930. And oh, the, and so the stage play was was on stage in like 1928, 29. Okay, so it was before that. the The weird thing about Spanish customs mm-hmm. is that Spanish customs is a British legal expression. I know this from watching Rumpole of the Bailey. Spanish customs are a legal expression for, what would you, how would you say it? For traditions in a company that run counter to its, its, um, its policies. Okay. So let's say you had a company where it, was, it became normal for people to take it at an extra half an hour to their lunchtime. And so people were taking hour-long lunches. So they're really supposed to take a half an hour half an hour lunch break but over the years it's become a custom for them to take an hour long right, lunch break and so in british law it's called a spanish custom that doesn't help us solve this problem i though, think with i might song. have a, a, okay. a possible solution okay where you uh, have you mentioned the duncan sisters yet no okay the duncan sisters 
uh, were an American vaudeville uh, duo, and they had a hit song in 1928. Oh, here we called, go. Uh, it must be an old Spanish custom. Okay. I have the song here. I don't know if it's listenable on here if I play it right now. You can play it, and I will I will uh, edit in actual right. audio. Here we go. He gave me one look from his big Spanish eyes And when I went hook, line, and sinker He paid me sweet compliments, then held my hand His manner was full of bravado He sang me sweet songs from his own native land While he played on a big avocado I still have the blisters on my fingertips. I collected it from his burning lips. I guess it's an old Spanish custom, a regular thing in Madrid. I thought I might have to bust him for some of the things that he did. He took me home and politely he said, I'll see you later. <laughs> I nearly dropped dead. But when I got upstairs, he was under my bed. It must be an old Spanish custom. Possibility. I think that's a. I think no, no. I think that's a for sure, because it definitely runs. It's definitely matches in terms of time periods, like when Animal yeah, Crackers was being their formed. Style. It sounds like they'd get it, and probably was something that Groucho just threw into the in as an as a is an ad lib based on just having heard it or knowing about them, 
and it became part of the script when it when it was what was it mystery filmed. solvers. That's what we are. Yeah, it was a very good, uh, very good search. So you search for old Spanish custom vaudeville. I searched for it must be an old Spanish custom, and that was that was oh, what came okay, up. Oh, okay, wow. I, yeah. I searched for it yesterday, and I maybe I didn't put in the full name though. Oh, that's good. Good for you. Nice. So there you go, Kathleen, aka Vichy Chicago. No, I didn't realize part of Chicago was uh, was a uh, was a free French territory. So now let's. Um, what are you typing in? Oh. Um, we have a uh, we have an alarm going off downstairs. Oh, I'm not sure if that's pick upable on the microphones. Uh, so uh, I'm being uh, asked by my landlord, "Do you want me to come over and turn that off?" And I'm now telling them, "I don't think we can hear that right now." No, I think we're fine. Uh, but uh, but yeah, come over and turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> Be our guest. So that's what's going on. So if you're hearing, by the way, in the background, some of you with very sensitive ears. Uh, that's what that's all about. Yes. Okay. It's, it's not the usual uh, chorus of crickets that we get. Uh, that's right. We By the way, it. we record this in my house now. Yes, it's nice. <laughs> it is nice, except for the cricket. The, the yeah, cricket. It sounds like we've got like uh, a bunch of little baby roadrunners in the basement mm, right now. Nice. Okay. That is kind of cute, though. Okay, so our last our last letter, this is our very last letter. I, okay. I, I misspoke when I said we had we had, well, the last one. I don't see a letter one. in front of me, Dave. Though, this is our penultimate. Well, this is the interesting thing. What's, what's going on? This... It's not a letter. This is a voice letter. A voice <laughs> letter. Is that what they're called? Uh, a letter. That's what they call it. A letter. This is a. This is a. Uh, one of our listeners, uh, Tony De Simone, has sent us. I hope that's how I pronounce your name. Sorry, Tony, if I mispronounce it. But Tony has sent us. Uh, Wait, did Tony mention his own name on this voice letter? I don't know if he did because he will probably pronounce his own name right. Well, we'll listen and find out. I can always edit it uh, correct. All right, so let's sit back, relax, and listen to Tony's letter. Hello, this is the Grib Schnobbler here, host of the Gribcast, and I want to say that I've really enjoyed uh, the Full Marks podcast immensely since I discovered it um, not too long after y'all started it. I, I remember I did a search for Marks Brothers podcasts. And I actually found a couple of them, uh, but so far, uh, yours is the one I've listened to the most. I think you were only about, um, up to, uh, monkey business at the time I found y'all. So, uh, I've been able to follow you pretty close to when you started. Um, Duck Soup is my personal favorite, Marx Brothers, but, uh, I actually also really love room service. And that's one of the main reasons I wanted to get in touch with y'all because, uh, I really loved hearing your discussion of the movie Room Service and, uh, even though I don't, uh, um, uh, personally agree with, um, a lot of the opinions y'all had on it, I, I really enjoyed your perspective and it was really entertaining hearing both of you talk about it. And I really love finding out so much about the making of the movie, uh, which is something I didn't really know too much about. Uh, I read a book about the Marx Brothers, uh, way back when I was in high school, but I don't recall it actually having that much information about the making of that film or, um, the later Marx Brothers movies. Uh, I remember I was especially struck by your concern for anyone who saw Room Service as their first Marx Brothers movie. And uh, I, again, I completely understand uh, your concern about that. But it actually is the first Marx Brothers movie I ever saw. Um, I'm pretty sure I saw it late at night on the Disney Channel, of all things. Although it could have been uh, somewhere else. Uh, memory uh, for that is a little vague. But not knowing anything about the Marx Brothers... Uh, uh, and not being put off by the kind of limited setting uh, of the film. I, I actually thought it was uh, very funny as a kid. My favorite gag uh, being uh, the endless 
shoveling of mashed potatoes into Harpo Marx's mouth that 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 just continues uninterrupted when they when they get that really big meal. I just that just really cracked me up so much as a kid. And then, uh, you know, a little bit, you know, a year or two later, I saw duck soup for rent and, um, at, you know, at the local rental store and. I recognized them and thought, well, I definitely want to see this. So I checked that out. And that's probably my favorite Marx Brothers movie now. And Room Service might even be my favorite of their post Night at the Opera films. Although I'd have to see A Night in Casablanca again. And maybe I do still like A Day at the Races a little better. But um, the films from Day at the Races onward, I actually just haven't seen as much. The public library where I checked out all the Marx Brothers movies previously didn't really have too many of them uh, of their films after day of the races. So uh, I didn't really get to see most of those until I actually bought the, uh, the DVD set that had all of the um, night at the opera and after uh, films of the Marx brothers, except for love happy, which I didn't see all the way through until recently. And uh, uh, as a Harpo, as a big Harpo fan, I do enjoy it, but it is not as strong as <laughs> any of the other Marx brothers films. And it, it's very hit and miss. Uh, I was kind of disappointed to find out about the uh, advertisements being snuck into the film, too, because I actually had assumed when I watched the movie, I'd actually assumed that those were not real advertisements. And I actually found it to be one of the more entertaining and inspired uh, parts of the movie. I thought the gags were kind of cartoony and surreal and uh, I, I, I liked the style of it. So it's it's a little it's a little disappointing that they actually were just using advertisements to get funding for the movie, but I, I would argue that they were at least able to do something kind of fun with the advertisements they worked in there. I don't know, but uh, it's it's hard for me to get, not get at least a little enjoyment out of even uh, a movie like Love Happy. I've always been such a fan of the Marx Brothers since I was younger. Uh, I guess I mostly just wanted to say thank you for the show. It's been great. I've enjoyed every single episode. I love hearing you two uh, discuss each movie. And I love all the behind the scenes information I got from uh, about each of the films. I guess I don't actually have too many questions, except I'm curious if either of you actually have seen any Ritz Brothers movies. And if so, what you think of them? I've always been a big classic comedy buff, and I've always been really curious to see the films of the Ritz Brothers, especially after I found out that Mel Brooks is a big fan. Uh, although, interestingly enough, Jerry Lewis was not so much of a fan and said, once said that only one of them was actually talented. Nonetheless, I'd still love to see one of their movies and I'd be curious to compare them to the Marx Brothers and other classic comedy films, but I've yet to be able to find any of their movies anywhere. Uh, I haven't checked YouTube in a while, but uh, last time I checked, there weren't even any on there or anywhere else I could find. Also, I don't know if this is something you've heard about yet, but there's a great documentary called The Unknown Marx Brothers, which uh, I've had on DVD for a while. A lot of the stuff that they have on there, they, they have a lot of footage of, of uh, different things that the Marx Brothers did outside of their films that's really interesting, most of which is probably on YouTube nowadays, but at the time I got the DVD, it was kind of hard to see. One of the most interesting things was actually a pilot that they made where the three of them were going to play angels. And I'm assuming you're probably going to get into that in your, in your final episode. Uh, it's, there's footage from the pilot in there, but I've, I've never seen the whole thing again. Maybe that's on YouTube now, but if you know about it or, or have seen it, I definitely would love to hear you talk about that. Um, and you know, I've always been really curious how 
uh, it would have gone if Chico had been feeling well enough to do it. Apparently, um, he was, uh, having a lot of health issues and, and wasn't able to, um, you know, work properly, uh, when making the show. So that's, it's pretty sad to hear, but, uh, I love the Marx Brothers. Uh, I was really happy to, to hear the two of you talk so much about them. And, uh, I'm definitely going to check out the Sneaky Dragon podcast. And if you ever start covering any other, uh, classic comedy, uh, performers and stars, I'd definitely be interested to hear that. Um, you know, I'd love to hear y'all talk about Jerry Lewis films. He's another favorite of mine, but he's not for everyone. So I understand if that's not, if that's a, not the direction you want to go in. Thanks again. And, uh, um, I'll enjoy listening to your further endeavors. All right. Well, thanks, Tony, for thanks, that. Thanks, Tony. Um, so Mel Brooks likes, likes the Ritz brothers. Likes Ritz crackers. That's what uh, I got to do. He song. likes the Ritz brothers. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and in Young Frankenstein does a song called Putin, Put on the Ritz. <laughs> and Jerry Lewis does not like them and was putting down the Ritz. And oh. that's how they're very different. Very different indeed. Well, I guess Tony will be happy to hear that we're going to be doing, uh, Get a job minute by minute. No, I don't know what that movie's called. That one that he, uh, that later, that the 80s movie that Jerry Lewis did, what was it called? Oh, the one where he puts on the Asian glasses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, it's like get a job, got a job or working or. We're going to do, uh, out of work. We're going to do a minute by minute review of all of the telethons. Yes. <laughs> do, do the, the Jerry each, Lewis each, telethon. Each week we're going to do one minute. more minute yeah. of a telethon. Yeah. And we're going to be done never. <laughs> No, we we do appreciate that. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I'm uh, not a. Well, just let me just say, I'm not a huge Jerry Lewis fan, so I doubt that I would really want to spend much time uh, going over his. But oozle. who knows the, what the future holds? Who knows? Uh, but it's interesting with Room Service. Yeah, your first your first uh, Marx Brothers movie does imprint on you. It and, does. You know, has it a does. deeper kind of connection. I have a lot of patience with a Night of the a Night of Casablanca, which I might not have had. Without having seen that movie, the, for, as my very first Marx Brothers film. Yeah, my first full one is probably uh, Day at the Races, mm-hmm. which we saw together. Yeah, uh, and yeah, and and that one was a uh, was an odd one to me. I was surprised by all the songs. Yeah, watching yeah. it the second time, uh, the songs were less irritating to me than the first <laughs> time. Whereas the first time was just like bring the funny people back. Yeah, but that's yeah, me yeah. for the most part with most comedies. Yeah, it's like, yeah. oh, it's a comedy show. This is great. Oh, here's some music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not why I showed up. Uh, if I want music, music's available to me. Uh, there's no problem with me getting the music. When I want music, I would like some comedy now, please. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't need this much variety. Thank you kindly. Though, as we as we learned is, uh, you know, when you take the music out, the, the structure kind of falls apart. So, hey, it's a load-bearing song. Who knows? <laughs> Anyway, thank you so much for uh, for your audio letter. Yes, thank you very much. Oh, oh, this one thing about the Ritz Brothers, which sure. is, I know you talked about Ritz Crackers. and uh, No, I didn't. Yeah, you did. You were talking about Ritz Crackers. No, no, no. No, no you sure. brought that up. I'm pretty sure you No, did. I think that joke's laying I, on the floor because of th- you. I think if we go back to the mm, beginning of this. Let's, we'll, let's play it back. <laughs> um, the Ritz Brothers are, to me, just not that great. Like, their movies... I'm not sure who they were meant for. Like Wooler, Wooler and, uh, Wheeler and Woolsey. When I watch those films, I can tell that those movies were made for rural audiences. They're kind of slow. Their jokes are very telegraphed. They're done in a very deliberate way, which to, for me as a modern movie watcher is very bo- boring because the film is done at such a deliberate pace that there's, I'm, I'm miles ahead of them before we even get to the joke. Rich Brothers 
are more urban and are a little faster, but they're done. They're almost like a kids comedy act. Like they're very broad and very silly to such a degree. And I like silliness, but they are so silly that it just becomes infantile in a way. And it just doesn't appeal to me. I'm, you know, Ian, you know this about me, but I'm a very sophisticated person. Yeah. A lot of you're wearing a monocle that, right now. I am wearing a, wearing a monocle and a top hat. Yeah. And you're wearing spats. But you don't know where to wear them, so you're wearing them on your arms. <laughs> Let's not judge. In fact, I'd say mm-hmm. you're putting on the Ritz. Thank you. But as a modern sophisticate, I just feel like the Ritz brothers don't really work for me. As you know, like the Marx brothers, for all their goofiness and silliness, have have a patina of intellectualism to them. Particularly when S. J. Perelman was writing for them, but that carried on through Kaufman. You know, they had they had some really great writers working for them. And, you know, so there is, an, there is an element of wit to it that's more than just silly or, or just, you know, cheap jokes and stuff like that. Yes, they're cheap jokes. Yes, they're slapstick. But there's also, you know, Roth waxing or so-and-so waxing Roth, you know, like uh, a joke like that you just don't hear every day. You know, very few people will use the phrase waxing Roth to be angry. No. I mean, the only times are when you go, you know, two times a year to get your, wa- your Roth waxed. Yes. Yeah, that's. I'll edit that. I'll edit that better for you. Okay, it's like you know, <laughs> two times a year where you go get your Roth wax. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna leave that in later. <laughs> <laughs> you, sir, are a villain. <laughs> so I'm gonna answer the questions in a that we kind of put off in in a chronological or somewhat chronological uh, way. So the first thing is gummo marks. Mm-hmm. Gummo was the first Marx Brother to quit being a Marx Brother. And so everyone knows from listening to the show, he, he left the act in 1918 uh, after 11 years as a Marx Brother. And he left to enlist in the Air Force. And basically the reason that he left the act was that Minnie, who had... Moved, his mother. His mother, Minnie Marx, had moved heaven and earth to have none of her children conscripted during World War I. There were two. There were at least two drafts during World War One for for Americans. There was the initial one when they first declared war, and then there was a second one when they needed more fresh bodies for for the war. She got them through the first one by doing a lot of uh, doing a lot of uh, talking and and uh, and I imagine uh, begging and pleading. And she bought a farm because she heard that if people were farmers, they might they could get exemptions from the draft. So she bought a, a farm for them, and the. But that's where Zeppo's name came from, apparently, because he was. They kind of gave themselves country names when they were staying there. And really? He, yeah, and he became there was Zeke, and he became Zepp. <laughs> where Zeppo came from, is according to legend. Uh, and so, when the second draft happened, Minnie realized that there was no way that she could keep all of them from, or from uh, some of them being drafted. Right. That getting the letters and becoming part of a lottery, basically having yeah. to go in, and so she basically sacrificed Gummo who, to be fair, really didn't want to be where he was. He did not want to be an actor. He yeah. did not enjoy being on stage. He stammered. So he stammered as a child. He had it somewhat under control as an adult, but he lived in constant fear that he would start to stammer on stage. And so he always was very nervous and ill at ease and not really there when he was performing. So when his mom said, you know what, one of you has to leave the act and go into the military and that way we can keep the rest of your brothers from having to serve. Right. And you're going to be the one. He was actually happy. He enlisted in the Air Force. 
unfortunately, there was a shortage of planes. And while he was waiting for an opening to become a pilot, or yes, to become a pilot, basically, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, he was drafted into the U.S. Army instead. Yeah. But being recognized as one of the famous Marx Brothers, he was quickly promoted to corporal and soon after that to supply sergeant and was able to use his showbiz connections in Chicago because that's where the family lived. And mm -hmm. so they had a lot of friends and acquaintances in the in show business in Chicago. Right. Uh, he was able to use those connections to kind of become a sort of entertainment uh, organizer. So he would take officers around to the various, you know, vaudeville places right. and to meet the chorus girls and have a sure. good time and whatnot. And, you know, he really was able to make a lot of friends. So he really ended up just kind of being a supply sergeant for uh, a unit in the U.S. Army that had no supplies. And so it was, he had a really cushy job. <laughs> After he was in the army for five months, uh, armistice came, uh, obviously on the 11th of November, 1918. And so he was out of the army. Now, from about 1916 on, Gummo and Frenchy Marx, Frenchy, his father, right. had operated a side business selling paper boxes to grocery stores and butcher shops, not only in Chicago, but he would do it while he was traveling. As a, mm -hmm. as, so he would do it before he performed on stage. He would go in the morning and go around and sell paper boxes to stores and then he would go in for his you know maybe they'd have a matinee performance and he might go out again and do a little bit more or he would you know and so after leaving the army uh Gummo decided he was going to move back to new york city and start a box building business and in 1919 he patented a laundry wrapping device which was essentially a uniquely arranged folding box with only four sides instead of the normal eight, which saved on cardboard for it made the, uh, something cheaper for the stores for the uh, okay the laundry like you know like you know commercial laundries. Sure, sure. Unfortunately, it fell apart because the I guess probably related to wartime and after war the, the boxes didn't fall apart. The business fell apart. The business fell apart because okay. the price of cardboard <laughs> shot up. <laughs> They're going to say it's like it's a four sided box. Unfortunately, yeah. Boxes need more than four sides. Need more than four sides. Yeah, exactly. they would fall apart. <laughs> yeah. So his next venture was to get into the dress business. And so he knew someone who was also in the dress business. And so Gummo became a salesman. And he had enough success to convince himself that he should go into business. And But his first partnership failed because, according to Gummo, his partner didn't actually know how to, act, to make the dresses that Gummo was selling. Right. So around the time of Horse Feathers, Gummo started a new dress business called Gummo Marks Incorporated and open a showroom on Broadway. And this venture was not a success either. So what Gummo ended up doing was working for Zeppo at his talent agency, eventually taking over the management of his brother's careers from a, let's put it mildly, a less than enthusiastic Zeppo. Mm -hmm. He handled the business affairs of his brothers, arranged Groucho's deal for Your Bet Your Life, booked Chico's night, nightclub tours. And when Zeppo shut down Marx, Miller, and Marx in 1947, Gummo started his own production company called Gummo Marx Productions, as well as continuing as a Hollywood agent. And so... Uh, it was in that role that he um, helped develop um, what was going to be the Flotsam family for, for Groucho. Mm -hmm. So he helped Irving Becker develop that. Uh, and then, and then of course, it became uh, the life of Riley. Right. But Did he have a piece of that? He had a piece of that, yeah. Oh, that's nice. Mm -hmm. Do get the life of Riley when you got a piece of the life of Riley. <laughs> <laughs> and so what's interesting about Gummo is he rarely used contracts. He would not have his clients sign contracts. Uh, he felt that if his clients liked his work, they would stay with him. And if they weren't happy with him, they would leave, and that was fine. You take the contract, you fold it into a little box, and you just put it. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> uh, By the way, when we were talking earlier about like the biopics of the Marx Brothers, yeah, no, the Gummo story is the one. 
Yeah. Because the Gummo story starts with them starting off with stuff that you don't know, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it gets the army thing, which sounds really interesting. And then it's all these businesses. Yeah. And then it ties into show business. Mm-hmm. And it's all uh, that, that, that's, this is, this is your thing, <laughs> right? It's, sure. this is the interesting, this is the interesting stuff. You make a, you make a nice little mini series out of the life of uh, Gummo Marks. Yeah. You, you got something going there. And, and Gummo was one of the, there's only two Marx brothers who who married once and married for life. He married in 1929, and when his wife died in 1976, mm-hmm. they were had been married for how many years that is? I don't know. Sorry, everyone. I can't a do lifetime. math. A lifetime. Uh, the other one is Harpo. When Harpo married uh, Susan Miller, I think her name was Susan something. Mm-hmm. Uh, Susan Fleming, sorry. Susan Fleming, who, of course, was in Million Dollar Legs. <laughs> they, there you go. This is the last time that we're going to mention that. He... Uh, he stayed married to her until his death. Right. But the reason for that was he, could, he couldn't ask for a divorce. That's, that's the problem. She could not read. She could just not, kept whistling. That's, she couldn't What's speak. that? You want a cup of coffee? She couldn't speak. She kept, kept thinking he was talking about a snake. <laughs> like, nope. <laughs> so uh, Gummo died just shortly before uh, Groucho. Uh, and Groucho was not informed of his death because he was in such perilous health himself that it was felt like it would be too big a shock i'm so sorry and it's it's a little more but i thought you were saying groucho wasn't informed of his own death no that too <laughs> no until groucho when he died uh he died four months after gummo but here's an interesting little tidbit though gummo's son brett marks appeared in the original bad news bears as jimmy feldman as one of the kids playing on Is the bad right? news bears. Yeah, he was a third baseman in the movie Oh, that's interesting. Not a super significant character, just a curly-headed kid. But yeah, uh, but yeah, it's kind of cool. All right, let me do a shout-out, by the way, to The Bad News Bears. Uh, you should watch that movie if you haven't watched that movie. By the way, if you haven't watched that movie, you're going to be shocked by that movie. That is a shocking movie. It's a shocking movie? This, Nowadays? Yeah, I guess. It is a shocking movie. It's a shocking movie. movie at the time. My parents would not, oh, it is not a sh- allow us it was to go a sh- see it. Here's what it was at the time. Well, that's a shocking movie. Yeah. Now here's what it is. Whoa, that's a shocking movie. I really like that movie a lot. It is a very good movie. All right, so that's Gummo. Yeah. So let's talk about Zeppo, who was the next Marx brother to leave the act. He quit the act in early 1934, obviously right after Duck Soup, uh, right after his dad died. His mom had passed on, his dad died, and he said, I'm out. I have no more obligations to be in this act. I was only in it because my parents wanted me to sure. be in it, and I am done. So he'd been, a, he'd been a Marx brother, though, longer than Gummo. He'd been a Marx brother for 16 years, nearly half his life spent as a Marx brother, and he never made full partnership in the family business. <laughs> and I think he really resented that. Sure. So after a brief ownership of a kind of fancy sandwich bar that served alcohol, uh, Zeppo stayed in show business with a theatrical talent agency called Bren Orsatti and Marx. Then after that agency had quickly folded, with no fault of his own, just problems within the other people in the, in the business, he struck out on his own, first as the Zeppo Marx agency, and then when he was joined by his brother-in-law, Alan Miller, and then his own brother, Gummo, it became Marx Miller and Marx. And he was an extremely successful agent. Uh, he represented, among others, Ray Milland, okay. Barbara uh, Stanwyck, sure. and Dennis Morgan, and some other people that were quite well Sounds known. Sounds good. I could say other names, but I don't know who they are. They're uh-huh. just people that were popular at the time that have kind of gone away. With Barbara Stanwyck as his partner, Zeppo uh, coned a ranch called Marwick Ranch. It was usually meant as a facility for breeding and training racehorses, but when they discovered how expensive that is to do and how much time <laughs> it takes to do it, because it's like the old joke, you know how you make a million dollars in in uh, horses, right? Mm-hmm. You start with two million. So when you discover that, you dis- you think, well, how can we do this differently? So they, it became a like a, a boarding, a, a horse boarding facility, and then they sold it. Now, he closed his agency in 1947 and completely withdrew from show business. But 
earlier in 1941 with a friend, an engineer friend named L. Herman. He had started a manufacturing company called Marmon Products. And they manufactured bicycle parts and motorcycle engines, as well as clamping devices and straps, which they started doing because of the war. So the Marmon clamp was developed during World War II to secure cargo during transit. For instance, it was used uh, to secure the atomic bombs on the Enola Gay. Okay. That's an important thing to secure. Mm -hmm. You don't want uh, that to be loose. And it's still used today. Almost every motor car on the road or every vehicle on the road has a a Marmon clamp on it that was invented, invented by Zeppo. Wow. Um, it's used in uh, space vehicles use it, like the Cassini wow. Orbiter has it on it. Yeah, it's just a quick connect hose clamp is yeah, basically yeah. what it is, but it's very, That's really very efficient. Neat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Zeppo also invented a wristwatch that emitted an alarm if the wearer's heartbeat became irregular. Okay. And he invented a therapeutic pad for delivering moist heat to a patient, which if, you know, if you, which I used to be in the, in this home care, you know, like home health care industry. And that was a popular item. Obviously it was maybe more an effective uh, design that he might have developed at the time, but it's a very important thing. Yeah, it's interesting. Neat. So that's what he did. Oh, for... good on him. Yeah. Well, yeah. Let's get that guy in this too. By the way, <laughs> my Gummo uh, TV show I'm talking about, yeah. let's get Zeppo in on there too. I mean, there's going to be some crossover, right? Because, <laughs> sure. Yeah, those sure, sure. two. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the real Marx Brothers. Side Marks. <laughs> Side Marks. There you go. Yeah. A side of Marks. That's what I'm okay. about. There we go. Nah, it's not as good. We'll oh. talk about it later. We'll workshop this. Birth Marks? The lengthening, the lengthening gaps between films uh, meant that the brothers had already started on their post-Marx Brothers careers by the time they were making A Night in Casablanca and Love Happy. So after the release of The Big Store, ostensibly the Marx Brothers' last film, okay. Chico started up his own big band in 1942. So he had a, uh, there's a, jet, like a, kind of, like a big band manager, this guy named Ben Pollock, who was basically the musical brains behind the operation with Chico as the front man. And they put together a 16-member band with an added vocal group. And basically, it was like a straightforward dance band of the day. They toured around so people could dance to their music. Only it had Chico's, uh, you know, kind of his uh, kind of personalized piano stylings. Now, would he do any banter? Well, he would perform a solo f- at the piano for 15 minutes for every performance. And he would also do a monologue okay, after right. a few numbers. So they'd start good, the show, they'd good. play some songs. Yeah, that's what you want. He'd come, he'd come forward, he would do a, a monologue, introduce the band. And then he would introduce the vocalist and the vocalist would sing and he would sit on the edge of the bandstand eating a banana or a carrot <laughs> and if he ate a banana as the as the vocalist walked off he'd shove the peel into their their jacket pocket and then go back to his to to work <laughs> what uh, would he do if he had a carrot just put the stock in? Uh, i don't know what he yeah the, i guess he would yeah he'd probably just throw the, the greens, end of it yeah put the greens in put there the greens yeah. in that the greens good. hanging out would be funny in the in yeah the, sure yeah. banana peel kind of hanging there like a yeah so Although none of uh, Chico's performances with the orchestra were ever filmed, uh, it's most likely that Chico's musical scenes in A Night at Casablanca and Love Happy, well, I shouldn't say it's likely, it is a fact that they were adapted from the stage act, okay. including the piano and violin duet that he does with Leon Belasco in Love Happy. Uh, he did on stage with, with, with a, a guy named Johnny Frigo, who was a bassist violin player, bassist and violin player who who uh, Chico developed this act with and with who was very surprised when he went to see Love Happy to see his act <laughs> that he'd been doing years before with Chico uh, on screen. So the orchestra broke up in 1943 and Chico continued to perform, but he never had a, as big a group that he performed with. He would still do nightclubs and stuff like that for a long time, but on a smaller scale. Uh, but a couple of notable members of Chico's band were, one was Barney Kessel, who was a jazz guitarist, 
but I know him best as a member of LA's famous session musician group, oh, who were kind of like a large kind of uh, floating kind of group of musicians who sure. went under the name The Wrecking Crew. Okay. And he played like on Pet Sounds, for instance. Oh, the, wow. The, okay. The Beach wow. Boys album. Another member was the vocalist and drummer Mel Torme, who was most famous for writing the Christmas song, obviously, Chestnuts Roasting on Open Fire. But he was the vocalist in Chico's band when he was yet very young. Wow. Velvet Fog. Yeah, the Velvet Fog. That's right. So yeah, so that so now Groucho, who I think was never very happy in film, I think he preferred the spontaneity of stage to the kind of very, you know, clamped down structure structured setting of, of film. I'm and, sure he liked television better than later on because that mm, was perfect for, for, for perfect that. for that. Yeah, and so his dream was to have like a, a, a hit radio show because there was no TV when or right. there was little little right. TV. There was some TV. Yeah, but there not was a literally little TV. It was very little. <laughs> there very little, and there was very little to watch on. That's right. And, at that time, but so he yearned for a successful radio show, uh, but uh, most of his attempts were not successes. So the first we've talked about this was Flywheel, Shyster and Flywheel, right. which he did with Chico in 1932, which was followed by The Marks of Time, which was like a kind of a news, a sort of jokey news format show, which he did with Chico again in 1934, right. where he played a reporter and Chico was his assistant. Uh, he and Chico recorded a pilot for the Marx Brothers show in 1936, but it wasn't picked up. By the way, can I just ask this? Sure. It's like, so back then, you had film and you had radio. Yeah. Was it sort of the same situation as, well, it's hard to even explain. But I was like, status-wise, was radio lower status than film? or was it No, not really. It, it was pretty parallel because yeah. there was a lot of... I was going to say, is it like now? But then now... Uh, there's so many high status yeah. TV shows that you know that you know, for just, sure. I'm just curious. It, it's odd to me that Groucho had so much success in film, mm-hmm. and yet when went to radio and couldn't yeah, uh, translate yeah. it to radio, it's like, well, mm. it's Groucho Marx and yeah. Chico Marx. Yeah, they're on the radio for free. Why aren't you listening to them? If you'll go and pay to see them in the movie theater, you're not gonna yeah. really. It's not. It's not for you, huh? Okay, but you'll see him in movies. I think Groucho needs, even though. I think he needs a visual component, even though I know his mostly like verbal okay. elements to his act. But I think there's also a huge amount of of his face, yeah, facial doing stuff with the eyes, mm-hmm. and what have you. Yeah, that sells the jokes. It sells the fact that it is a joke that that lessens the True. Kind of, that lessens the meanness of it in, in a way. You know, because he he can be kind of biting, but I think his approach to it in movies kind of lessens the the sting. Also, when you see Groucho in a movie back then, yeah. you were seeing it in an audience and you were getting laughter with other people. Whereas if you're getting at the radio, well, you are getting laughter from the audience there, but it's different than the people surrounding you. It's a different experience. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, the final Marx Brothers radio series was a show called The Circle in 1939. And it was kind of a, like a weirdly experimental idea for a show. So the idea is that The Circle is kind of a club, in quotation marks, okay. of of actors and actresses. So Ronald Coleman was part of it, Carol Lombard, Cary Grant. And then they would have guests like Alexander Wolcott or Noel Coward. And the idea was that they might do a performance. They might sing a song or tell some jokes. Or they might just sit and talk about some subject that was kind of in the news and have like a serious yep. debate about it in this in this kind of weird format. It was a kind of a strange show. It was so strange that it just wasn't popular. It was very it was critically lauded, but mm-hmm. wasn't publicly lauded. The public didn't really latch on to this idea of a show. But I think it'd be fascinating. Apparently, there's one that still exists, a recording from of this show uh, that has, I guess, a, you know, a song is sung. And there's a little bit of joking and stuff like that, and then they have like a talk about why it's important that America join the war effort in, in, during because it's filmed, you know, why in 1939 it's important yeah. that America get into the and help Europe in this in the war. 
And so it's interesting. Like it's a weird format, and I. It's too bad that it wasn't a success. But I guess. Yeah, it sounds like something would be on PBS much later, and also be critically successful, and then not successful. For sure, but it's the fact that it's actors and actresses doing this. It's a kind of curious thing. Uh, Grocho appeared on a show called the on the Pabst Blue Ribbon Town series for sixty three consecutive weeks. Like he didn't take a break. Wow. And from 1943 to 1944. Oh, my gosh. The next season, he was replaced. So they took him off the show, and they placed him with Kenny Baker, who was the actor in At the Circus, the really high-pitched actor okay. in At the Circus, uh, who played the lead role. The, the, Not the little the, person who was in R2-D2. No, no, <laughs> no, the romantic, the romantic yes. lead. Yeah. Uh, yes, not that person. Uh, <laughs> who would just go, boop, boop, bleep, boop. <laughs> So we mentioned a couple of times the Flotsam family. So he was part of the co-creation of that with Irving Brecker and Gummo. And, and they all kind of worked together to bring this show about. And then the the only way they could get the show uh, to be made was for Groucho to step aside and allow William Bendix to come in. And and they cha- slightly changed how the series was. And so yeah, he kind, of, he kind of took the hit for Irving Brecker. So Irving Brecker oh, could, could have, the, have an actual radio show. Which was pretty nice of him. Obviously, he could have just been a jerk and said, no, yeah. no, me, my way or the highway. But no, he stepped aside. Then he did a show in 1946 uh, called the Beverly Grocho Hotel. Actually, it was just a failed pilot. And then, finally, in 1947, Grocho hit pay dirt with the radio game show You Bet Your Life. Uh, a show that finally used his strength as a kind of an, a, an ad-libber to his advantage. Mm-hmm. Whereas all the other shows had been scripted and he would just stand there and read a script. And... Apparently, the show was inspired by an appearance he did with Bob Hope, where Hope accidentally dropped his script on the ground in the middle of their talking. And so Groucho intentionally dropped his script. And then they did like 10 minutes of hilarious ad-libbing. So as soon as there was no hope, it all worked out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. there you go. Uh, the producer, this guy named John Goodell, so impressed by this that he approached Groucho with the idea of a kind of a semi-extemporized game yeah. show. and. Which Groucho was was initially reluctant to do because you know to game him, shows you, are kind of low. Game shows are partly low, but also it was thinking, well, I need a script, I need something that I can rely on. Uh, but then he was won over when he realized that the quiz elements are only a backdrop for the contestant interviews, which would sure, give sure. free reign to his ability to yeah. you know joke on the fly. Now, was this the first one of these type of shows where the whole uh, idea was it, it's really a comedy show, but we're 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 just slapping uh, game game elements in to bring in real people. I don't know, but I would think so because it's not very common afterwards either. Well, I mean, it's like Hollywood Squares and whatnot. Like, yeah. who cares? But I mean, you know, I'm, there, there's a bunch of those jokey type shows in the seventies. Yeah, and, you know, yeah, I guess, I guess. But yeah, I think I think it probably was one of the very first. I can't think of any that popped in my head. I mean, the pr- problem is if I listen to old radio shows, I'm not listening to game shows. So right, I'm listening to actual good things. <laughs> uh, so the other thing is Goodell convinced Groucho to invest 50% into the show. Oh. So Groucho owned 50% of You Bet Your Life for the entire run of the Whoa. show. Whoa. Yeah. And Whoa. so Groucho must have been very grateful for that. Oh, and man. I think we can he, also, he said the secret word. I think we also thank Gummo who did the uh, business uh, deal. Yeah, I guess Gummo thanked him for 10%. <laughs> yeah, as well. All right. So uh, the show ran on radio from 1947 to 1960. At first on ABC Radio for two years, then moving to CBS for one year. And then finally moving to NBC TV and radio in 1950. And it was on TV from 1950 to 1961. And then, of course, it went into syndication forever after. And we'll never escape it. Now, And it became such a cultural thing. Like, mm-hmm. the, say the secret word is just such a thing. Yeah, yeah. Yes, you're right. 
Uh, Harpo was probably the least active of the Three Marx Brothers, as I was saying earlier, because for one thing, radio wasn't available to him. And although he did, so um, his most notable TV appearance, I think, was on the I Love Lucy show, where he re reenacted the mirror sequence from Duck Soup. Very well, too. I, I rewatched that uh, mm. recently, and yeah. uh, it's 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 really well done. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. So the most notable TV appearance by the Marx Brothers, though, was the Love Happy Lake reunion of The Incredible Jewel Robbery, which was an episode of the General Electric Theater on March 8th in 1959. So like I was saying earlier, Chico would have been 72 when this was filmed. Is that right? Okay. Harpo, 71. Really? And he Groucho, does not look 71. And Groucho, 69. Okay. Um, so this was the first time all three Marx Brothers were together on film since A Night in Casablanca. Uh, and it was also the last time all three Marx Brothers... Well, I shouldn't say that, because they were together for one more thing, so I won't say that. Okay. The episode is mostly Harpo and Chico playing a pair of thieves preparing to commit a jewel heist. Groucho makes a brief appearance at the end of the episode, which is why I say it's kind of love-happy-like, that his 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 uh, participation was kind of limited. Right. His spirit is in the middle of the movie as well. Yes, yes, that's yes. true. So, which was a real surprise at the time when Har- when Groucho appeared in the show because because of his NBC contract, they weren't allowed to have him in the billing for in the credits. So when he showed up, it was like a su- real surprise. The director of the of this film, and he directed a few of these General Electric, was a guy named Mitchell Leeson, who was a really good director, like directed some really great films, including two of my all time favorite movies, which are Easy Living and A Night to Remember. A Night to Remember, both of them with from Preston Sturges scripts. One has um, Gene Arthur and Ray Milland, and A Night to Remember is uh, Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck. Okay, two absolutely fabulous films. Uh, a Night to Remember is this a great Christmas movie, and Easy Living is a great, great screwball comedy. Oh, good. Okay. Good and, recommendations. Oh, yeah. They're fantastic films. Well worth seeing. He also directed a couple of films I like a lot. One was uh, Death Takes a Holiday with um, uh, Frederick March, and then um, another one called No Time for Love, which also starred Fred McMurray, and Cla- Claudette Colbert, I believe. Yeah, quite a good director. Uh, he went on and did a lot of t- TV, did Twilight Zone, did a lot of stuff, but yeah, he was very good. And then... What's also interesting about the show is Elmer Bernstein did the music for it, and I was kind of surprised to see mm. that because he's someone who wrote the music for The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape. Really? Yeah. Ghostbusters, um, The Three Amigos. This is surprising to me because when I was watching it, you know, the thing that's off putting about it is uh, the laugh track. Yes. Because they don't know where to put the laugh track. They don't. And quite often they do the classic mistake of laying the laugh track over the setup to a joke, mm-hmm. which is very mm-hmm. strange. Yes. And then they, and that combined with the music, which I thought actually sounded very Gilligan's Island. I found it too obtrusive myself. I just thought it was too, too, like it's like they were f- frightened of the silence of the actors. Yes. And buried it in the music. Right. But it was goofy kind of music. It yeah. Was that, yeah. It was that Gilligan's walking down the island, <laughs> you know, thing. And then, and then again, yeah, you went for very long periods of time without the laugh track. And then when the laugh track came in, you're like, well, what are you doing? But there was nothing they could do. There was like nothing. Yeah. Yeah. That would, that would be a joke. Yeah. And it's too bad. Like, Something that Mary, my daughter Mary and I, who appeared on the Monkey Business episode, we're talking about a little while ago uh, on a different podcast we do together uh, called uh, Sneaky Dragon Listening Party, where we're talking about laugh tracks and and she was saying how much she dislikes them and then how she just will not watch a show with a laugh track. And if you're if you if you kind of become not used to them, which I think I am now with the TV shows I watch, I don't watch shows with 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 a laugh track anymore it feels so horrible when you when you like well I, you and i grew up with saturday morning cartoons that had laugh tracks yeah as well. so i think we were used to the men yeah 
Although, yeah, I didn't really grow up with, I was realizing the other day that I didn't really grow up with Saturday, with Saturday morning cartoons as much as I wish I had, because I played soccer as a kid, mm-hmm. which was always on Saturday morning. So I always missed the Saturday morning cartoons. I've never felt sorrier for you than I do now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I felt sorry for myself too at the time. You know what? If you cry for about a day, you will get out of having to play soccer forever. That's what I found. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. But that's just my personal experience on that. But yeah, it is. It, that part is jarring, especially when you've watched a whole bunch of the movies. And then you're like, mm-hmm. oh, here we go. Oh, for, and, and what was the movie that was supposed to originally was going to be Harpo All Silent? Love Happy. Love Happy. That's yeah. what I thought. Like, oh, he finally gets to do the all-silent movie. And one thing that I liked about it was they kept giving excuses why people were being quiet. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. That's that's just a great conceit of just like, you know, uh, you know, sorry, we're at kind of a sanitarium for people who are deaf and dumb. Oh, we're in a hospital. Quiet, please. Be very quiet. Well, of course, you got to be quiet. We're sneaking around trying to avoid the cops. Yeah, yeah. And like, it's great. Mm-hmm. It's it's just uh, uh, yeah it, it 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 all it all really works. It's weird seeing Chico not speaking. Mm-hmm. That's a little jarring. Where you're like, all right, he's doing a bunch of business, and that's okay. Uh, but Harpo Harpo really shines in it. Uh, it's interesting watching uh, Harpo smoke in the film because I, I didn't realize this, but Harpo didn't smoke. And mm. actually, because uh, he did a play called Yellow Jacket in the fifties and with Alex, or maybe in the forties with Alexander Wolcott, and it was kind of like a a Western version of a Chinese play. And he played the prop master, which in Chinese theater, the prop master is part of the stage. He has to stand on stage. And he's, and he's supposed to smoke, but Harpo didn't smoke. And so what Susan Fleming did was she sat behind him and smoked and blew the smoke out so it looked like he was smoking, <laughs> which is really great of her because she didn't smoke either. So yeah, yeah. It's interesting. He didn't really like smoking. And it, so in the show, he's always got the cigarette in his... In his yeah. In his mouth. He just did it as a gag. He would do the, the, the bubble smoke thing. But that was just as a gag. He didn't really like the... He didn't enjoy smoking. So the Marxes... Um, so I guess we can talk about a little more of that. Um, did, what, what did you think about The Great Joe? I really enjoyed it, actually. I thought it was quite fun. I mean, you're watching it. They're a little decrepit, obviously. They, they're not, they don't, yep. not as sprightly as they once were. Harpo is definitely Harpo. Yes. You know, but a more grounded Harpo. He's mm-hmm. not doing anything too surreal. Mm-hmm. Um thing you know uh, him and chico have a nice relationship look i'm gonna say the best thing about it is the punchline is outstanding yes like the punchline is so great yeah you know to the point where i you know it feels weird to like spoil something that's you know this old but should we spoil what let's not spoil it oh that's so spoily uh okay here's here's (laughs) here's the thing if you don't want to spoil jump ahead 30 or 30 seconds or a minute all right we're gonna give you like uh, go ahead two minutes two minutes and we're gonna give you time to do so Ready? Here we go. Okay. At the okay. So in the mid- midway point, Harpo uh, robs um, a jewelry uh, store. Yeah. Uh, disguised as Groucho. Yes. So that's fun. We're all having a good time. There. Yeah. Then they get caught at the end, and Groucho comes in as their lawyer. It's been silent the whole Let time. Let me just say, he's disguised as Groucho with the what's become so ubiquitous now: the glasses, nose, mustache. Yeah. Uh, costume so it's kind of cool too so it's a lineup and uh chico's picked out from the lineup harper was not because he was dressed as groucho yeah and uh and then groucho comes in the person picks groucho out yeah yeah and then uh groucho says we're not going to talk until uh until we uh, meet with our lawyers yeah yeah and it's like that's great isn't we're not going to talk until we meet with our it's just like (laughs) he's the only guy who gets a speaking line and then they're all basically get together in a bit of a huddle yeah and it's uh i think groucho is doing the leg the harpo leg thing Uh, with Harpo puts, right? his, Harpo puts his leg in 
in Grocho's hand, and then Grocho puts his leg in, in Chico's hand. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. It's just a sweet brotherly thing, so yeah. it works on an emotional level. It's a great punchline <laughs> that it's the only line said is yeah. just brilliant. And Okay, there's another great scene in it where okay. they're sitting at... They're, you know, because they could have got away with this. The kind of fun part of it is they could have got away with the robbery. Yeah. But they end up in a situation where they have to help someone who's in trouble, and they do. And so they're leaving the hospital. Now things are getting hot. Police are actually looking at them kind of like, hmm, who are you? And then they're sitting in their car. And I just love the scene where the police car pulls up beside them. And they're looking at their car, and they look down, and they see that their city police logo is different on their car than on the police car. I just love that. It's just a really well played, really well edited scene. Like it really plays the beats well. Yeah. Like it's done, you know, it's a it's a well done little show. I really thought I, I really enjoyed it. I feel like it tapped it's not, you know, it's not super it's not like a Marx brother thing. No. But it uses their their characters really well and it kind of and it doesn't it doesn't kind of obnoxiously push a different style of comedy on them. But it kind of exploits their character. It's kind of their characters acting as these criminals yeah. in a way. Yeah. It's fun. It's very charming. Yeah. I yeah. really enjoyed it. All right. Welcome back. We won't spoil this for you. Rosebud was a sled. <laughs> it's okay. Charlie Brown spoiled that for me many, many years ago. <laughs> so after the Marx Brothers did the incredible jewel robbery, and it was, you know, it was pretty successful and people really thought it was great. Um, a producer, this guy named Phil Rapp, who was a, uh, he was British, but he was a kind of a longtime comedy writer in Hollywood. He uh, created Fanny Bryce's character, Baby Snooks, okay. who uh, Groucho... Is it, is it Baby Snooks or Baby Snookums? Baby Snooks, yeah. Oh, I thought it was Snookums. No, okay. Baby Snooks. And, you know, so he was a, kind of an established writer. And he had an idea to create a, a TV show with, with the Marx Brothers in it. And his idea, the way he envisioned it was that it would kind of... You know, taking into account the fact that they were pretty old by this point, like sure. I said, uh, how old they were. And so then, you know, the, he kind of would, the idea of the show was that it would cut down, it would have appearances by them, but it wasn't entire, the whole show wasn't them. Right. And so the show was going to be called Deputy Seraph. And the idea of it was that Grocho, sorry, not Grocho, Chico and Harpo are angels, kind of guardian angels, who would come down to earth and inhabit the bodies of people in order to get them out of troubles in their lives. And so then the actors would act as if, as Harpo and Chico. Okay. Playing themselves as characters who were in like a sticky jam. And so that would help them get out. And I believe the pilot episodes involves, is going, was going to involve them helping a pianist out of a problem. And so, and then Groucho was the deputy seraph. He was sort of the big guy upstairs who they answered to. And so, and then he would call God occasionally in the show and he would be like, and he would like put his hand out and say, you know, Whatever, and then a telephone would magically appear in his hand, and he yeah. would make a little joke about it. So they, um, what Phil Rapp did is they, they basically they kind of created this this international co-production between Britain and America, and so the idea was that they would film the Marx Brothers in Hollywood, but they would film the remainder of the show in England, oh. at Pinewood Studios, and so they would use actors there, and so they shared the production cost that way. Unfortunately, they did film about 60 minutes worth of footage, of sort of test footage. It has the Marx Brothers, has Chico and Harpo in the sort of cl- a place with clouds on the floor and kind of background of stars. I think they're wearing wings. And there's a scene of them, not them, but people who are supposed to be them, bouncing through the clouds, obviously on trampolines. And, and then has a little bit of, of and has Groucho in as well, doing a little bit of business. And it's interesting to watch. It's not complete. It's very rough footage. It's unedited. It's just a bunch of what they filmed at that time. The problem was is that 
uh, Chico was was um, diagnosed with arterial sclerosis, so he has had hardening of the arteries, and so the show couldn't get insurance mm. because once that happens, you're you know you yeah. don't know how long you're going to last, and there wasn't um, you know there was wasn't the kind of advanced heart surgery we have nowadays at that time, so he uh, was kind of he couldn't be insured, and so the show fell apart. How successful it would have been as a TV show, it's hard to say. But it's interesting anyway, that the, if you watch the footage. Do you want of, to see people doing impressions of Chico Marx? Yeah, is that what you want? Or do you want, they're doing Harpo and stuff like that. Yeah, it's kind of kind of odd that way. Yeah, that's a tough one. It is tough. But Phil Rapp is a big Marx Brothers fan. And, and I don't know, maybe he could have pulled it off with the writing. I have no, I, you know, we don't really have any any full any full footage to know because we don't have any of the actors doing that part of it yeah when you're saying that um that uh, groucho is the head angel mm-hmm. that sounds pretty good yeah but and then he, I, was, but he I, was he was going to be only like every every one in three shows he was going to have an appearance because but when you said that it was like well no he should be the devil mm. groucho is the devil yeah. would be making the wry sarcastic comments and you know okay. about what's going on yeah, that yeah. seems to be like a stronger I think, but that's just that's just me. It's just like I really like that idea, you mm-hmm. know. I, again, it's uh, it's interesting. It's like uh, you know, later on, you know, uh, you had uh, George Burns playing God, yeah, and basically as a vaudeville performer, sure. sure. And I could see like Groucho in a very similar role, and well, then later on, uh, Burns played both the devil and God. There you go. In a not great uh, movie, but he did have fun doing it. Sure, I'm glad, sure yeah. he did. Um, Groucho actually did play God, but not really God, but he played a character called God in Skidoo, the Otto Preminger disaster oh, uh, comedy. Oh, okay, I have not with, seen uh, that. With Jackie Gleason, and uh, yeah, it's not, a, it's not a great movie. No, eventually yeah. I will see it. After this is done, and I won't have to comment on it on this show, I will see it. Despite the fact that I'm a big Groucho fan, yeah, and a big Nielsen fan who did the music for it, Harry yeah. Nielsen, it is not a great film. It is not a fun film in any way. But, you know, watch it. Work is work. Experience it. You know, he had a chance to do a different movie. I think he had a chance to be in a film that was going to be directed by uh, Bertolucci. Oh, really? Oh, no, Fellini wanted okay. him. Fellini wanted him in well, Satyricon. He was, yeah, he was a fan of uh, Fellini's. I know that much, yeah. He, he wanted, Fellini wanted him to, to be in Satyricon, and, and uh, Groucho chose to be in Skidoo instead. Oh, no. So, oh, I, he probably didn't want to fly no. to Italy. He, he yeah, probably yeah. would have had to fly to Italy. Yeah, oh, boy. Oops. Oopsie doodle. <laughs> so that's Deputy Seraph. It's, it's interesting, but it's not, there's not enough of it for us to judge. Mm-hmm. Also, there's a pun in the title, which is always a bad idea. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Because that gets less funny every week. It sure does. It sure does. And then there's people who don't know how to pronounce Seraph, so they're calling it Def- Deputy Seraph. Yep. That's a problem. Uh, the Marx's final film appearance was in Irwin Allen's, yes, that Irwin Allen, the creator of Time Tunnel. And Land every the, disaster movie. Land of, Land of the Giants. Oh, I don't know. What talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did a movie called The Story of Mankind, which is based on a book where God and the devil are debating the continued existence of mankind, okay. whether we deserve to continue to exist on the earth. And they bring out various historical incidents or non-historical incidents, i.e. the Garden of Eden, yeah. to tell to tell the story of our whether we deserve to continue to exist. Yeah. And so in the film, Harpo appears as Sir Isaac Newton, plays a harp, plays beautiful dreamer mm-hmm. on the harp and has an apple drop in his head. Which gives him a great idea to use the harp as an apple slicer. <laughs> uh, also, it's uh, 
it's nice to watch it because you get to see Harper Wynn color, yeah, which is a rare thing. It is. And, and it's a really beautiful color, actually, too. It is quite nice, and it's nice to see his actual red-headed wig. Chico has a rather dull, straight part as yeah. a monk, try, being convinced by Columbus that the world is round, although everyone, no one at that time, actually thought the world was flat. So that's just, uh, that's just once again, people from the future judging people from the past and making fun of them. Groucho plays Peter Minuet, Minuit, however you say his name, who uh, bought Manhattan from the, the Indians for $24 and some trinkets. Right. And it's actually the best one of the, all the bits, I think. Uh, he actually has some funny lines in it and some yeah. good little bits. The Indian, uh, the, the chief's daughter is played by his then wife, Eden Hartford. Okay. So that's kind of fun. And his friend Harry Ruby is also one of the one of the Indians in the scene, so it's kind of fun. The problem with the film is that the idea of the movie was that Ellen supposedly cast the Marx Brothers, and when he did that, he's they said, "I'm you know I'm getting them together for one last movie," and then he cast them in three separate parts in the film. They never get to interact, which is dumb. Yep. Like, like for you know, all, okay. just bring them together at the end. Well, or bring even them, they're in heaven. Bring them together at the end. It's fine. Or wherever they're at, it's fine. They could, yeah, I guess, or or have them in a scene together. Like they could have m- monkeyed around with the with the Manhattan scene and had Chico play the 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 chief and Groucho play the the Peter Minuet Minuit or however you say his name Minuet yeah Minuit, whatever uh, Minuit Min I don't know we didn't learn this in history class so I don't know what sure. you but um, and then find a place for Harpo in that find a place for Harpo in that bit. You know, as say, maybe he's the medicine man who's advising Chico, yeah. you know, and have them all three of them play in a scene together. That would be fun. Instead, we get two okay, well, one okay, one dull, and one pretty good. Yeah, sequence. if you're doing the Columbus one, which I think is the weakest one, so let's yeah. fix that. Yeah. You've got the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. There you got three boats. Well, let's see the three boats. Who's on the three boats? Well, on this boat, we got this guy. On this boat, we got this guy. And on so this you want boat, them to be in three different scenes together? No, no. It's like the th- they're going to be uh, oh, okay. getting ready to, to start these three boats. And okay. Because, you know, Columbus isn't on all three boats at the same time. No, no. So it's just like, okay, you're going to be in charge of this boat, you're in charge of this boat, you're in charge of this boat. And the one that, hey, we're going to fall off of the earth. And it's like, and then Groucho's doing his business and Harpo's doing his business. Sure. And Columbus is getting frustrated with these yeah, yeah. Uh, with these guys. You just play it up that way. Newton, uh, you really can't do much with. No. No. Besides, use the harp as an apple slicer. That's right. Which seems disrespectful unless you're to th- Unless you're three different uh, scientists that are all sleeping under the tree, and only Newton kind of gets the one bit, and the other two, you know, get their own ideas of what this is all about. Eh, I don't know. But uh, now I'm ju- now I'm just winging it. This yeah, it would have been nice to see the three of them together. The the the, the scene the scene with Groucho is uh, is you're right. It is the best. It's the tightest. Yeah. Uh, it's you know it's 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 an it's old a sketch. Time- it's, it's the old it's the old timey sketch. Yeah. It wouldn't be out of place on any sixties show. Yeah, yeah. It's all right. Is there a point to it? Eh, you know, it's just what it is. Yeah. You know? Uh he repeats uh one of the jokes twice that I don't know if it bears repeating. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, but the first time you hear it, it's okay. <laughs> sure. The it's one thing I thought was strange was that for the last five Marx Brother films, we get a shot of Harpo Marx standing beside his harp or embracing his harp, looking heaven, heavenward, while a key light shines down on him. So we know that heaven is smiling down on Harpo and his harp. Right. Then we get this movie, where he uses his harp, his beloved harp, that's apparently related to heaven in some way, and uses it as an apple slicer. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense yeah. to me. It seems odd. 
That is interesting. Well, the harp, yeah, is the heavenly instrument, so that would make uh, sense. Uh. Yeah. I mean, that's what the angels play. They play little harps, right? Or big harps. They just play harps. You liar. Oh, I don't think they play that. Okay, go ahead. That's what little harps are. Are they called liars? Yeah. Little ones? Yeah. Oh, I thought they were like kind of a little guitar type thing. Oh, no, no, think, of liars, yeah, think of a lute. Yeah, I think of a Think of a lute. Yeah. Uh, was, sorry different. about that. That's okay. That's right. In the jewelry heist, they make off with the lute. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, now there are quite a few... When, one part of the Marxist career, and I, I assume this would be anyone's career, if they have a long career in, in show business, is that there's going to be abandoned projects that come up mm-hmm. that are that don't reach fruition. One of the one example of that would be um, Deputy Seraph, okay. which didn't make it off the ground. In 1930 or 31, Ernst Lubitsch wrote a script for the Marxists, uh, but Groucho was less, less than enthused by it. Apparently, in the film, there's a scene where he... He says something about a trolley. He's like in a like in a house. He's in a room in a house, and he mentions something about the trolley coming. And then a trolley just comes, appears in the scene, and he gets on it and and goes away. And and he said the trolley the trolley uh, left and went downhill, and so did the sketch, <laughs> or so did the script. Yeah. But apparently, it was likely intended for par- uh, part of this sort of like anthology film that w- was being made at the time called If I Had a Million, which came out in 1932. And so that didn't really work out, so that did not happen. But speaking of Lubitsch, uh-huh. if you remember back when, back at the time when uh, they were working on um, Duck Soup, there was discussion that that Lubitsch might be involved in directing that. And it was given a title at the time called Ooh La La, as some sort of like reflect, reflection of his European-style kind of comedy of manners that he was so fam- famous for, the Lubitsch touch sort of thing. But that did not come up come about of course it was said taken over by leo mccary who turned into a different film entirely and of course we mentioned this earlier there was the attempted filmed version of the george s kaufman maury riskand play of the icing which was attempted or talked about as being in, in production three different times and did not was never filmed by the marx brothers or by anyone else it was never filmed by the fact that it was a pretty popular stage play now, during the production of A Day at the Races, there were, uh, if you remember back, because Thalberg decided that the Marx Brothers didn't really need time off. They thought they did, but it wasn't really true. What they needed to do was make as many movies as possible <laughs> for MGM. Uh, uh, so while, while A Night of the Opera was finishing its production, he had two different screenwriting, screenwriter teams working on screen, screenplays for the Marx Brothers. One was called Peace and Quiet, which takes place in a sanitarium. All right. And had a little bit of horse racing in it, but not very much. Just part of kind of a plot contrivance. There was another film that was written by Harry Ruby and Bert Kalmar, who wrote, who co-wrote Duck Soup, called Go West. That takes place at a rodeo and involves the uh, a map to an abandoned gold mine. Okay, so the, they just took the, the name for that for their other film. That, okay. For the that the well, I guess Brecker was given that script to work off of, but he basically threw it out and just kept the title. Okay, for his own for his own not very good screenplay. Uh, but it's interesting that there's two films. Both of them really didn't. We don't really yeah. didn't really make it past that stage of development. One, obviously, Falberg died, so the whole idea of producing in a kind of a streamlined way more and more Marx Brother movies went with him, and so that screenplay never saw the light of day and then he himself kind of sent 
sent uh, Peace and Quiet into its own direction by saying, I want you to play up the horse racing element of it, because I think he recognized that that was a stronger part of it than Mm -hmm. the sanitarium, which is, I don't think, a great setting for the Marx Brothers. And no one ever thought of doing the Dolly one, right? We'll get there. Okay. Uh, I thought that was from a little earlier. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) But I think it's the most interesting. Oh, so you're saving it for the last. You're not doing it chronologically. Yeah. All right. Uh, There was much... So in 1958... Uh, this guy named Kyle Crichton wrote a book about the Marx Brothers, wrote their biography. They basically sat down and told him lots of stories, mostly made up about their time <laughs> in vaudeville. Like they didn't even give him their proper, didn't even give them their his, their proper ages yeah. because they'd always been aged down by their mom in order to keep the high ah, school the okay. high school act alive as long as possible. Mm-hmm. So as long as they weren't too old on stage, they could convincingly play teenagers. You know, so by the time they were like in their mid twenties, they were still playing teenagers. Uh, because their ages had kept going down. Right. That, by the way, that wasn't anything to keep them out of the military, right? That was no, just no. for showbiz. It was just for showbiz. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the idea of doing this film, there was going to be a biographical film called "The Life of the Marx Brothers" that would star the Marx Brothers, mm. playing themselves, playing their vaudeville years and stuff like that. Oh wow! Okay. And it was going to be uh, produced by Lester Cowan, uh-huh. the producer that Harpo hated so much from Love Happy. He was had decided he was also going to do this film. Wow. And they were going to do their old routines? They were going to do their old routine. Wow. And, of course, in exclamation points, as big as possible, please, exclamation marks, Harpo talks in this yeah. film. Because Harpo isn't really Harpo in real life. So you're going to have the behind-the-scenes stuff. You have to have Harpo talking. Yeah. And there was even suggestions that they were going to somehow get Gummo and Zeppo involved in it, which mm-hmm. was really impossible because Zeppo in no way was ever going to stay, set, or Gummo, for that matter, were ever going to set foot on a stage or a film set. Okay. Get Gummo to play Zeppo, Zeppo to play Gummo. It never really came about. It, it, it was talked about several t- different times throughout the 50s, and it just did not come about as a Probably movie. for the best. One interesting project that was seriously discussed, but was ultimately never to be, was the Marx Brothers at the UN. So while Billy Wilder was making the apartment in New York, he was staying near the UN. And he was watching the kind of daily bustle and all the stuff, all the goings on, and all the Cold War paranoia of that time period. And he thought... Wouldn't it be funny <laughs> if in this situation you had the Marx Brothers in the middle of this, you know, this situation? And he mentioned it to his co-writer, I.A.L. Diamond, who thought it was a great idea. And so they um, put the idea to Groucho. Groucho liked the idea. And then he passed them on to Gummo to work out a deal. And so they came up with a 40-page treatment of the film. And basically the plot was Groucho would be a leader of a mob, kind of like in Skidoo. Okay. That decides New York's police department is so tied up with the UN delegate protection that it would be possible to rob Tiffany's unnoticed by the distracted officers. Mm. Chico was to be the muscle of the organization, Harpo at Safecracker, shown in one scene to be unable to open even a can of sardines. <laughs> sardines again, that's what I said when I read that. Navigating the New York sewer system, they would steal four suitcases of diamonds from Tiffany's before attempting to escape on a tramp steamer bound for Brazil. There would, however, be an anti-communist demonstration when they got to the pier, and some of the police were to mistake them for the UN's Latvian delegation. They would be given a police escort to the Latvian embassy just when they would otherwise have been able to escape. The comic climax was to have been a scene where Harpo addressed the entire general assembly without uttering a sound, utilizing his classic bag of tricks including horn honking and girl lunging while multiple foreign interpreters tried to translate. (laughs) That's pretty good, all right. Unfortunately... Harpo suffered a heart attack while rehearsing a TV special, so that put plans on hold. Yeah. And then Chico died, oh, permanently ending the project. So the final, and to me, most interesting abandoned project, which you 
hinted at earlier, is known as giraffes on horseback salad. <laughs> you might want to repeat that. Giraffes. Those words don't make sense together. So say them a little slowly. Here we go. Giraffes mm-hmm. on horseback salad. Two different words at the end. Horseback salad. salad. Yeah. All right. And giraffes. Okay. Giraffes on horseback salad. While in France to promote uh, Night at the Opera, Harpo was introduced to Salvador Dali. Now, Dali, of course, is a surrealist, and the surrealists were really taken with the Marx Brothers because they felt like their comedy came from an unconscious place, just like surrealism does. The idea of surrealism is that it's unconscious art, that you are accessing your dreams and putting those dreams into writing or painting or or movies or whatever. So, of course, Dali's famous film, La Chienne Andalusie, that was directed by Louis Bunuel, is sort of like the the surreal benchmark of you know with the, the slicing of the eye the yep. the, the uh, person you know uh, chained to a piano dragging it through a desert all these sort of more like dreamlike images rather than uh, a coherent film and so that's what he brought to the marx brothers dolly presented harpo with a gift of a harp that was strung with barbed wire hmm. and used spoons for the tuning pegs and was wrapped in cellophane how harpo, did harpo feel about this harpo put it in the corner of the house and then they eventually threw it away Dolly also wrote a script for the Marx Brothers in which an exiled Spaniard, say Dolly himself, escapes his boring fiancée into the arms of a surrealist woman whose companions are the Marx Brothers. The decor of her house is provocative, red satin walls, lipped-shaped sofas. At one point, Groucho and Harpo are caressed by girls' arms coming out of a mirror, which I thought was interesting because there's that scene in La Belle et la Bête, the Jean Cocteau, who is also a famous surrealist, Mm -hmm. the Jean Cocteau version of Beauty and the Beast, where beauty is going down the hallway and it's a beautiful scene. Have you ever seen that movie? No. Oh, it's a beautiful scene. They have her on a like a cart, and they're just pulling her slowly along the floor. And so you can't see what's pulling her. She's just because her dress hangs so low. And then there's this fan that's blowing her hair and her dress and stuff like that. And then there are these arms that come out of the walls, bare arms, holding torches, and they're just swaying. Oh, I have seen. It's I a have very seen famous scene, yes. sequence. Yeah, it's beautiful. So it just that reminded me of that. Uh, Chico, while wearing a diving suit, plays a duet with Harpo. Groucho invites a, well, a well-off family to a picnic, but then horrifies them by firing gunshots at their home. Did I mention that behind many of these scenes are burning giraffes, which is a very common Dolly-esque uh, motif. Okay. Harpo, uh, carrying a large butterfly net, is instructed to round up 18 of the smallest dwarfs in the city. Hmm? Dolly also provided drawings of some of the key scenes, an eyeball with 23 arms. Okay. A couch that looks like a large pair of lips. 36 arms asleep on a sofa, an armchair with roses growing out of it, Groucho as the Shiva of big business, answering 10 phones with his six arms. Okay. And then finally, there's a picture of Harpo with an apple over his head and his hair full of, like a, his hair having like a large lobster or kind of crustacean okay. in his hair. Those are the, some of the images that he wanted to include in the film. Okay. Needless to say, Gro- Harpo was very polite. Groucho told him that it was unfilmable. Yeah. Which uh, Dolly thought was extremely uh, bourgeois of him. It's weird. The Harpo thing actually is two things from the uh, uh, history of, of mankind. Oh, how so? Oh, playing. W- one hit, hit, oh, hit, hit by an apple oh, on okay. the head. Yes. And also, uh, sorry to say, this is one of the things when the, when the um, Native American person says uh, how, it's uh, three minutes, leave them in the shells. Okay, yeah. Which I assume is either crab, how? lobster, no, or no, no. mussels. Eggs. Eggs? How do you like your eggs? Three minutes. Oh! Hard-boiled egg, three minutes. Leave him in the shell. Well, all right. Forget it then. <laughs> My mistake. <laughs> back okay. back at you. 
So there you go. That's uh, that's all I'm going to say about the Marx Brothers post career. That's all you're going to say about the Salvador Dali thing. <laughs> and that's all I'm going to say. Well, I mean, we can talk about it if you want. Sure. Uh, here's why that wouldn't work. Because the Marx Brothers need something straight yes. to, 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 you know, yes. if they're if they're crazy, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then you need you need then the Marx Brothers yeah. to be the most sane thing that's around. Yeah, yeah. The idea of that's grab- why that's why neither of us said David Lynch as a possible director of the Marx Brothers because it just to me it just wouldn't work unless he did it totally straight and just well, did like a, on the straight story unless he did like a straight or an Elephant Man or whatever mm-hmm. and left out the kind of creepier elements, but. You just never know how who, who, how he'd be tempted he to. He could, you know. Now that you say, it's weird that you're saying that because he's. Oh, also, sorry. Well, he did he, do. Uh, he did that uh, on the sitcom. Air, that's right. Which yeah, is very good. Yeah, that has that kind of bouncy uh, business to it. I know people. A lot of people didn't like it, but I think it's actually it was a very good sitcom. It was kooky, but that, isn't that supposed to be? Isn't it David Lynch? It's supposed to be kind of kooky. Mm-hmm. It's fun, but yeah, I think. You know, and I think that the Surrealists had the wrong idea about the Marx Brothers as well. Like they didn't. They don't understand that the Marx Brothers aren't about the unconscious. They're about very conscious choices of, in comedy. The comedy, the best comedy isn't unconscious comedy. It's comedy that's very inten- intended and has an, in, an intention to it, you know? Like you have a plot that you need to follow. You have to have timing to it. It can't just be willy-nilly. Like if you have a willy-nilly movie, it gets really boring after a while because you can't... Well... There's nothing to grab onto and there's no there's no pacing. I would counter, I would counter with Duck Soup gets all chaos and kind of willy-nilly at the end. And you, and you really but like that one. Yeah, but I don't think it's it's not unorgan it's not disorganized chaos. It has a it has a storyline to it. It's does it it's by the time the, by the time you get like into like the the final quarter of the movie. Yeah, isn't it all just it's just gags? It's whatever gags you but you can. But the it, plot okay. just goes out the window. No, it doesn't. No, what's the plot in the last quarter of Duck Soup? They go to war, and so you see them go to war. You see them. Yeah, you see they sing a song about going to war. They, that's right. Harpo, and then they go Harpo into, goes and announces they're going to war, and, uh, and then horseback. everything goes surreal from that point on, and it's all madness from that point on. But it's not madness. It's I mean, it has elements of surrealism to it, you know, with with Groucho's costume changing through it, all the scenes right. Everyone, like everyone, no, 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 everyone's costumes change constantly. No, only only Groucho's. Okay, all right. Groucho's costume changes, yep. reflecting all the different wars. Sure. Yeah, uh, and and there's really no. Stake stakes. No one's really in danger no, at that they, point. They, but they're in danger. They they radio to people that they're in trouble. They need they need help. That's why all the all the animals and stuff like that are ready That's to right. help them. Yeah. But I mean, it's I know I know you I know what you're saying. It's okay. it's silly, but it's still following it's still following a storyline of them going to war, them being in trouble, them people coming to help them, them going to help Margaret Dumont. Uh huh. Them trapping Trent- Trentino. And then them, them throwing a bunch of stuff at Margaret Dumont. Them trapping T- Trentino. Yeah. Them throwing stuff at Trentino. Margaret Dumont making the terrible gaffe of deciding to sing and yeah. then having stuff thrown at her. That is the end of the film. Of course, it's slightly disappointing. It's the end of a Marx Brothers movie. No, I don't think always it's disappointing. Slightly disappointing. I'm not, it's not disappointing to me. To me, to me, if you're going for like what it is symbolically, you know, I, I, it depends what you consider. Well, I don't think it's symbolic because I don't. I don't. I think. I know. I, I, know I know you don't. Yeah. Uh, but I'm going to say it is because the second that they decide that uh, it is, it is like a fairly linear movie. You're right with jokes. Yeah. Up until the point where we're going to war. Yeah. The second we're going to war, it's madness. It's madness. Well, it's gag filled. No, 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 no. All reality goes out the window at that point. It's like, first of all, you get a musical number. And of course, musical numbers stretch the boundaries of reality. And I'll give you that. But even to stretch in the boundaries of reality, they're just like doing crazy, crazy business. It's all craziness. Yeah. And then, and then the That's battles. Great. 
No, it's fine that it's great. I'm not saying it's not great. <laughs> yeah. But it's madness. It's all insanity. Like if you want to, like later on when, when the Marx Brothers had the resurgence of popularity, especially Duck Soup, that's when people were anti the Vietnam War. And they're like, war is madness. Yeah. War is craziness. And to, this movie kind of shows that. It's like the second they decide they're going to war, everything is just bananas. Like the, there's nothing. No one's got a character really at that point. Like everything's just there's no stakes. It's all just jokes, jokes, jokes. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Anarchy, anarchy, anarchy. That's all. That's all that you get because war is madness, and that to me is what the end of Duck Soup is. And you can feel differently, and that's yeah, fine. I do. But no, you can. I don't think there's a, a message. To no, it's it, not a message. Yeah. It's just what it is. Mm. It's ma- it's madness. You know that they they throw everything then up against the wall and do every joke possible. Sure. You know uh, to the point where yeah, animals are coming to their rescue. Yeah, you but know they do that earlier. They have Groucho in bed with crackers for God's sakes. Crackers. <laughs> that's true. That is the most shocking scene in the whole movie. That's right. But he is not Tarzan controlling every animal in the jungle coming to his rescue until, yeah, the very end. And that's and that's. Well, I don't feel now. like he's controlling all the animals. I just feel like he's called for help and everyone's coming for help. That's right. Not only are people coming, because tanks are coming to help. Well, soldiers yeah. are coming to help. Yeah. But also animals are coming to help. Right. It goes full cartoon. Yeah, that's fine. But it, it's it still... It is fine, it's but fine. it's also madness. But it's still following a through line. of the It's s- a through line, but it's surreal. At that point, reality... No, no. No, reality. You think it's dreamlike? It's beyond dreamlike. Oh. Every animal is coming at for for to rescue you. Yes, that's dreamlike. I don't know. Of course, it's, 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 it's just a gag. I don't. Yeah, it's that's a dreamlike gag. It's 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 taking re- reality is gone. Yeah. The second again, once again, okay. if this is a David Lynch movie, speaking of David Lynch, yeah, this is like those moments in a David Lynch movie where something happens and now from every everything from this point on is a dream. Yeah. You know, everything from the point where they declare war in Duck Soup to me, everything changes. Huh. Everything changes. The tone of the movie changes. Everything changes, and then you're just completely into this uh, other other reality. Uh, well, and you I can agree, disagree. I would agree. And with, that's fine. No, I would agree with you. The tone changes, I, but I just think that it, it just kind of steps it up a notch because it realizes it's beyond a notch. It's it's the near the end of the it movie. It goes to another world. <laughs> it doesn't go to another world. It does. It's still based in the movie. No. It's it, yeah. It's based in the movie because the movie contains itself. So of course, anything yeah. that's in the movie will be the movie. But You're I mean, correct. it's still it's totally still... how the movie begins and how the movie ends yeah. are very very different. The the beginning of the movie is a little bit surreal and weird and and stuff and that's whatever. But by the end of it. It's all the fireworks factory. It's uh, you know, it's it, it is giraffes <laughs> on fire. It, I can see, I can see, you know, yeah, what they're talking about with that. But yeah, again, that's like your it's... that's your point yeah, yeah. of view, and that's absolutely fine, uh, folks. You're still allowed to write and let us know what what you think. Uh, do you think everything changes once they declare war, or do you think ah, it's all just part of the same thing? It just takes it up uh, a notch. I think it takes it up like to the so many notches that it's a different <laughs> film at that point. And that's what war is. War is madness, and so that's what that is. I guess. I, okay. I doubt they were going for that because they're just a bunch of on the make guys just trying to get make, make a so living. many things happen that I don't see it as just an on the make situation. But but go ahead, please continue. With I don't know. You got pages in front of you. Are oh. we are we done with our letters? We're done with our letters, and we're done with. Uh, oh my with gosh! Story. Wait, Dave. But I have some questions for you. Oh, it's going to go. Is this the end of the show? This is not the end of the show because I have okay. some questions for you. All right. My first question is... How dare you? <laughs> how dare you? No, my first question is... Because um, you, you, unlike me, you came to this show with, with, I would say, some knowledge of the Marx Brothers, but not a great deal of knowledge about them. Right. 
I just wondered if I knew them culturally. I knew them from scenes. Sure. I'm uh, I was a, van, a fan of Groucho, but like not as in you know having seen all the movies. That's yeah, correct. Yes. Yeah. And just uh, so I was curious if like seeing all the films, if you like grew to appreciate them in a different way, or if it, if your appreciation grew like if you like yeah. Them more well, now? I mean, again, what I, what I was told at the beginning from people uh, who didn't want to spoil movies for me were like, once you get to uh, uh, Day at the Races, yeah, it all goes downhill. Mm-hmm. And uh, I disagree. It was uh, still very, very enjoyable to always see uh, oh, yes. the Marx Brothers doing their business. You're right. You know, even when you're getting to the very, uh, the very last one, Love Happy, which I felt was really a phoning it in situation, and then got quite sloppy at the end, and yeah. it was a shame, and, and that's too bad. Um, it still was, it still was delightful to to see them. <laughs> exactly. That one, that one, I don't count almost as much. It's like yeah. that one felt like that felt like almost a made-for-TV movie. Even more, like I would put the Jewel Robert one above that one i would agree with you you know yeah uh so you know that was that's all right uh but uh no i i i i do appreciate them more they they did a great uh a great job and i like how different all these movies are sure that's something else that i really appreciate is tonally how things keep changing and it's for different reasons obviously but you know you've got the as as you say like the the very first one is is very much a play mm-hmm. and just shot as a play and then they start learning how the camera works and then they became agents of chaos and then they learn structure and you get your uh, you get your night at the opera where it's like I think the most fully realized grounded movie uh, they try to duplicate it with Day at the Races and then they keep trying things from that point on and don't quite get what they got with that I think the high point for structure is definitely uh night at the opera if you want chaos uh, what's the one on the boat monkey business monkey business i think that's your that's that's your, my prime chaos uh marx brothers and i like i like all the versions of the marx brothers yeah yeah but it's been very enjoyable for me the <clears throat> for me the thing that i didn't really ever think about until i started doing the show was how much of their career was spent on stage it's something i never really thought about because my experience of them has always been film and I knew they performed in vaudeville, but I had no idea that they performed in vaudeville that long. You know, someone like Buster Keaton performed in vaudeville, but he left in the teens uh, and went into films and started doing silent films. You know, and same with Charlie Chaplin. He performed in vaudeville. Um, I don't remember hearing about Keaton crossing paths with the Marx Brothers. He didn't know them, but I know that Chaplin crossed paths, like in terms of being like in the same theaters or, or you know, maybe passing each other in... in you know, it, on the way out of a, on the on, on the way out of a week of work or whatever, and them coming in for a week of work and things, but I just didn't realize that you know more than because when you look at when you look at Animal Crackers or Monkey Business, they look really young. They do look really young, mm-hmm. but all of them are in their late thirties. Right. You know, they're already at a point where nowadays your career would almost be over, and they're just starting their movie career. They've already had like this huge. Hugely successful, a successful against all odds, vaudeville career. Mm-hmm. They had they had all the chips stacked, stacked against them the whole entire time they were in vaudeville. They were never accepted by the upper echelon or echelon, how you say that word, echelon of of the vaudeville system. You know the the Keith circuit. They barely ever got to play it. They kept alienating them, maybe for short sighted reasons. I'm not really sure exactly what you know, what Mini Marks was planning and stuff like that. Sometimes it was just desperation. They needed to work. Yeah. They needed to go on the Pantages circuit. But by going on the Pantages circuit, you were blacklisted by 
by the Keith circuit, you know, and so they succeeded. They succeeded in a vaudeville, you know, but by never playing the largest circuit of vaudeville, they were a huge success. They were such a huge success that they had to let them on the stage of the Keith circuit <laughs> because they were so popular. Yeah, and then they went to England just for a lark. And then alienated the Keith circuit again. <laughs> you know, got banned, blacklisted again. Yeah. Then they they teamed up with the Schuberts, who, without really good financial backing, decided to challenge the Keith circuit, the largest vaudeville circuit with the most theaters in all of the East Coast. And they they mounted a whole new production and toured it and bled money the whole time. But they they honored their commitments to the Schubert circuit. They played every show. They paid all their actors. They paid all their chorus girls. They paid all the crew That's great. who went with them and bankrupted themselves. They yeah. were broke. Harpo had seven cents left, left in his pocket when they stepped off the stage uh, from their final show for the Schubert circuit. The fluky success of Alsatia saved, their, saved them. But the reason that, that that worked was because they were so good. Yeah. You know, that's why, that's why they were like, can't miss in a way, because they were so darn good. You know, then it's, I'll say she is, then it's the coconuts, then it's animal crackers, then it's movies. And it's, but it's just, a, and so it's amazing to me to have discovered all that element. It's, it's like I opened a door and then there was this whole other garden path yeah. leading, you know, through into this whole other world. And I, I'm just sorry that all that, you know, home again and high, fun in high school and Mr. Green's reception and on the mezzanine and even I'll say she is to a degree. I know it's been remounted by people. Yeah. And I've watched, I've watched their clips, stuff of like that, and it's a lot of fun. But even they'll agree that it's not the Marx Brothers. Right. And it would be fun to watch the Marx Brothers do that. Or it would be great to see the Marx Brothers do some of that stuff, which we do see a little bit in the that piece they did for the house that Shadows built with the with the, the theatrical manager's office yes. sketch. And we can kind of see some that real kind of anarchy and stuff where they're really you know talking over each other and there's a lot of, a lot of carry on. The other thing about them that's interesting is that we've seen... And I'm going to speak more to the to now or m- more recent past, but you know, if you go back and watch the beginnings of Monty Python, if you go back and watch the beginnings of a show like Kids in the Hall, you can see them taking their stage stage work and trans- translating it into television sketches yes. and things like that, and it hardly ever works because stage stuff is loud and in your face, and it's meant to it's meant to be dynamic in a small place to a, to an audience that wants to feel like the show is around them in the theater. It's inter- it's really interesting to me that Marx is able to take that that theater experience and translate it really well onto the screen. Like though, you know, and it's obviously it's partly George S. Kaufman and, and and Riskin who really knew how to write, really good writers. But they were able to take that material and cut it down to something that really works in a in a theatrical presentation. So it still feels risky, it still feels anarchic and chaotic, but it's not loud and too loud and too much and too dynamic that it just seems like it's over the top you know what i mean yeah so it's really it's it's different with kids in the hall and uh, and uh, if you look at kids in the hall and you look at monty python they do have characters yeah but they're not characters yeah whereas uh, the marx brothers just lock down what their characters are yeah and then let everything run around here's here's one thing that i i really did feel watching it all and it's something i don't see really in almost anything else which is it's it's sometimes four, but uh, almost always three. Uh, men who clearly uh, have affection for each other. 
Yeah, I mean that comes across. Oh, that's that that's comes it. across. And sure. there's and there's a thing that you know when I, when I look at like uh, Laurel and Hardy, something that used to bug me when I was watching Laurel and Hardy was it always seemed like, well, then you guys should not be in the same room because you guys are always mad at each other and you're making him cry. Yeah, and you're frustrated and you're having a ugh, <laughs> this is a fine mess we're in now because yeah, of yeah. you, you jerk. And like uh, Abbott and Costello was just like, come on, and uh, tell me the thing, yeah, you dummy. You know, it's like this. Every, everything's like argumentative. Yeah, and it's like hostile. Mm-hmm. And even when Groucho and Chico and Chico's running a scam on Groucho, Groucho's kind of enjoying having the yeah. scam run on yeah. him, and he's like admiring this crafty guy who's doing the thing. And anytime he sees like you know he's talking to Harpo, and he's just like delighted, like oh yeah, yeah that shows good spirit. Yeah, you know that you're that. And then the guy kicks him, knocks the guy out, and like ah, right there. you know, but they don't <laughs> they don't judge each other. Yeah, they're just like we're these three. They're these three people. Yeah. They, you know, the the subtext is they love each other because you can tell they've got that uh, affection. But their characters are never at like hostile odds with each other, which yeah. is the easiest thing to do in comedy is argue. Sure, and they never argue. They just build. They yeah. just build the chaos, build the chaos, build the chaos. Even when they're frustrated with each other, they never argue and they never snap. You know, they make make a sarcastic comment about the guy just going, "This guy's a da 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 da," or you know, he was born with a da da da. You know, that's fine, but never a mean thing really to them to hurt their feelings. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, that's so. It seems easy, but it's so hard to do. And if you were to name like another type of comedy. Name it. Name name another comedy team yeah. that doesn't argue with each other and get mean with each other. Yeah, or even well, name a name a family group or a comedy team that didn't break up because of because of fighting and infighting and and jealousy and petty bickering and stuff like that. That never happened for the Marx Brothers. I mean, and it might be that they were flexible. That someone like Gummo, who was unhappy, could go. Yeah, or Zeppo someone like Zeppo who was unhappy and he was yeah. go. And he was he he went with their blessing. He didn't leave it in acrimony. You know, he I think he felt some resentment. Yeah, about his treatment as a as a Marx Brother, but he never. They never fought. Yeah, and it's yeah. Uh, music is a different thing because you have a lead singer, and the lead singer then becomes the star. Yeah, yeah. and you don't really have that with Chico Harpo mm-hmm. and Groucho. It's yeah. like you know, Groucho. You might go is like, well, he's the main focus sure. guy. There was wearing his glasses, but it's like, yeah. So it's just like they're definitely bouncing off each other. Yeah, and they're a team. It's a team, and comedy is a team. Same thing with like you know, Monty Python. Sometimes you get like a John Cleese, and like well, now John Cleese is the guy. He goes off and he does a thing. Sure, maybe, but it. He's, it's still better when it's what the, yes, the, the, the group, of course, right? Of course, yeah. So that's the that's group. the nature of a group. Yeah, it's, it's otherwise you're Chevy Chase, and you're like, I'm going to go off, and it's like, oh, that's great. Okay, bye, you'll Chevy. Never, you'll never see that synergy again. That's right. Yeah, yeah it's part of the part of the thing, and yes. they uh, and they did, but you know, but you know, Groucho did have his own career and did his own thing, and mm-hmm. definitely became his own sure. person, and and also they evolved and changed. Sure and then did. later on, Groucho evolved and changed and yeah. adjusted for television very, very well. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's great. I mean, and and like, and their careers aren't really, and there's no like, there's no Buster Keaton story to it. You know, there's no, there's no ten years of alcoholism and failure, right? And then slowly building back up. That's to, why I don't want to see the biopic because I know they're going to have to shove one of those on there yeah. to give it some drama. Yeah, it's like I don't know what were they doing the work. <laughs> exactly you know, it. or or you know, for all that I was saying, like I was worried about Checo. You know, they're going to have to play a whole bunch of beats where everyone's worried about Checo. Yeah, yeah. And we okay, we're going to play that up. Okay, yeah, you could. Yeah, but why? When the reality is, he died of old age, basically. 
Mm-hmm. You know, he lived a he lived a busy life. He lived a exciting life. He was loved by the world. He's loved by the world. He was still strangely loved by his family. Yeah, not only his you know his own brothers, but also by his, yeah. his ex wife. He got to yeah he children. got he got to work with his brothers in all these yeah. amazing movies. Yeah, yeah, it's a good story. It's not it's not so bad. Um, let me ask you. Sure. Another question for you. Okay. Uh, what was if you look back through all the movies, what what would be your favorite scene with uh, Groucho and Chico? With Groucho and Chico, yeah. Um, I liked the I'd say backstage in Night at the Opera, where they're just doing a little bit of banter back and forth with, with the contract. With the contract, yeah. Yeah, I'd say the contract stuff. That's a very good scene. Which is them just riffing, and I also like uh, Groucho and Harpo again, where he's, Harpo's knocking knocking the uh, the guy out. And uh, you know that's uh, so that would be your favorite scene with uh, yeah I like I like uh, I like both those scenes I okay. think those are grounded in the you know the structure of the movie but also it's just yeah they're just having a lot of fun but I really like them tearing apart the contract it's good physical business mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's it's them building on each other's chaos but they're still two very distinct characters with different motivations yeah yeah so I'd say how with, about yourself I would say Groucho and Chico I would choose the swordfish scene from Horse Feathers. As being one of my favorite scenes with with them. Okay, what is that scene again? The, where he where he the password is sort of yes, fishing. that's very good. I really like that sequence a lot. I think that's very good. I like them crawling in on their hands and knees. And, uh, f- my favorite my favorite Harpo scene actually is also from Night of the Opera. I would have chosen the one you chose. Mm. Uh, I love that sequence where he goes, "Oh, you feel bad, do you?" <laughs> yeah, I just love that sequence. I chose good spirit. So I'm going to choose. <laughs> what's that? Sorry, that shows a good spirit. Yeah, it shows a good spirit. <laughs> I, I'm going to choose uh, Harpo eating bre- eating his breakfast in the hotel room. Because what I love about that scene is how Groucho looks at Harpo. <laughs> he is so happy to watch his brother do that scene. <laughs> that he's almost like us. He's like the audience yeah. surrogate watching, watch it, you know, so we get to watch Harpo through his eyes. And he is so pleased yeah. with all the business his brother is, yeah. is coming up with on the moment there. And he's really admiring it. I really enjoy that. Um, favorite... Favorite Harpo and Grocho. Well, okay, you said that. So, favorite uh, Chico and Harpo scene. Chico and Harpo scene. Oh boy, that's uh, that is that is tricky. All right, why don't you go with yours, and then I'll try and think of mine because you've got one loaded up. I don't here. actually, but okay, I'm going to say my favorite one would be the barbershop scene on the in, on the ship in Monkey Business, where there are just one snoop of the uh, mustache. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd say I. Uh, oh, was, I think it was the first time that they. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, the first time they were doing charades. You know, okay. before we got before it became a little <laughs> bit hackney. We got charaded out. We got a little charaded out. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'd say. I just. I. You know what? Really, I, I. I always like it when they first see each other in a movie and they're so happy to see each other. Mm-hmm. That feels yeah. genuine. Yeah, they're okay. just like, "Hey, my friend!" And like, they're <laughs> having a great time. Yeah, I like the coconuts when they greet each other. Yeah, in the in the lobby. That's really good. Uh, okay, so uh, favorite <laughs> f- favorite scene. You can just choose any scene that you that you love in, in the movies. Okay, I kind of know your answer, but uh, oh, what what do you think my answer is going to be? Why don't you hit me with it? And that uh, might help L- me. Lydia the tattooed lady. Well, Lydia the tattooed lady is probably my favorite scene. You're absolutely right. It's, there's a real joy to the dancing. Uh, it's a great musical number. It 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 all it all really works. Um. Yeah, I don't know. There's so much stuff that's like so joyful. Uh, yeah, I'd say I'm gonna go with that. That's you, you got my number. How about you? <laughs> I'm gonna go with the scene in. I'm gonna go with the opening to uh, Duck Soup, 
where he shows up and he's standing. I just love the fact that he's standing in the line of soldiers holding a cigar up. Yes. With his pants rolled up. I don't know why his pants are rolled up, but he has yeah, rolled his pants good. up. I'm also going to go, what is it? Two hard-boiled eggs. Oh, the state room sequence. Stay room. Well, especially that, the, the sort of setup to it. That. Of just like ordering the meal. And it's so, it's so big. And, and that, so big and so big and so big. Even Not, not yeah. everyone falling out because I think sure. that's overwhelmed. Yeah. And actually the payoff doesn't work as well. Sure. But the chaos leading up to it is just so beautiful. The punctuation of the two hard-boiled yeah, eggs. Yeah, the two hard-boiled eggs. And yeah. what makes that great is that that was Chico's ad-lib when they were performing on stage, when they were practicing it. Because that makes it even better that when it's an organic you know, it, it grows organically and, and, it, and it just gets, it builds on itself. Yeah. And also, let's let's just face the fact that how good they were. Not only is, they were great comics. Yeah. They obviously had super great understanding that, you know, years and years, like, I mean, being on stage for 25 years before you even set foot on a movie set is going to make you a good comic, I guess. Could because do. You're going to, I mean, you're either going to get bad habits. Yeah. Or you're, re- you're going to get really good yeah. habits. And I, I mean, think they got really, really there's good There's a habits. lot of people who have done work for a long time that sure. don't get good. Yeah. Uh, That's but true. Yes. But I think, I, but I understand by the fact that I think they're just so talented. And I, I come from... Talented kind of, musicians. Yeah. Talented, you know, talented singers, comic artists. Yeah. Singers, everything. Yeah. Just, yeah. I mean, I come from a, an improv background where the, you know, the uh, hackneyed uh, phrase is yes and, and you, you accept other people's offers no matter how surreal and you build on them, you build on them. And, uh, and, you know, for as much as that gets kind of made fun of and rightly so, it... Uh, uh, at the heart of it, the idea of like saying yes to things is much more interesting, you know, on on stage and on screen than than not, and that is what they would do. They would never say no. Yeah. Where, or, or never try to get a grip, too much of a hard grip on reality. I mean, again, Abbott and Costello were fine, but they but their whole thing was miscommunication and argument. Or, and Abbott's you know. a liar. Yeah, and or sorry, Costello's a liar. Yeah, That's her main he's thing. He's a con guy. Yeah, Costello's a liar. He sees he sees a monster. Well, no wait, you're uh, not going to believe it. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's that's what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. But Bud Abbott is kind of the con guy there, running yeah. a, a thing. Uh, whereas, like, you'd have a misunderstandings with Chico and Groucho, and it would never be no stupid. That's not it. <laughs> yeah. Or you know, sure. It wouldn't. It wouldn't end with you know, and I don't give a damn. You'd yeah. never have that because it's like no, they're both just going with the chaos, mm-hmm. and, we're, and we're we're taking it as far as we can go. And you're like, yeah. Well, at some point, you got to pop this balloon. Yeah. And they never really pop the balloon. They just like make that's the chaos and now we're going to move on to this next scene over here and it's a really really tough type of comedy to do it's a smart type of comedy to do but you know if you see like a a, a will ferrell and a john c Riley comedy or something you know uh they do that as well you know and they try you know they unfortunately you can sometimes see the improv in it but you know it's just building on the ridiculousness mm-hmm. building on it building on it building all the, and yeah it's good yeah, I can I can definitely see the legacy of the Marx Brothers in modern comedy, for sure. For, for sure. sure. Yeah. And you know, if you're if if you're a kid of a certain age, you grew up uh, with Bugs Bunny, who was definitely Groucho Marx. You know, and 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 if you grew up uh, later on, <laughs> you grew up with the Animaniacs, where one character is literally an impression of you know Groucho Marx. Yeah. Yeah. It's just it's just there. It's in the DNA now of comedy. They've changed comedy forever, and we're the better for it. And yeah. Hmm. Okay, one last question for you. Sure. Who is? Do you want to watch the movies again? Is that what you're going to say? Yeah. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Who is your favorite David Dedrick? 
<laughs> no, no. Who is? Uh, I was gonna say. Do you have a favorite movie? Do I have a favorite movie yeah. of, of of the bunch? Um, if there was one that I would say, if you're gonna show a movie to someone, oh, uh, Night of the Opera, Night of the Opera, hundred percent. So that's your favorite movie, not necessarily. Oh, okay. But if I was to show a movie to someone, yeah. I would say, I would say Night at the Opera. Okay. Um, again, uh, sorry, the one with the one with the boat is Monkey Business. Monkey Business. I'd probably watch Monkey Business myself, and if I was showing it to someone else, I would I would watch Night at the Opera. Interesting. Yeah, I would say my my fave, like my top film, would be Monkey Business as well. It's it's the second one I saw. It was the first best one that I saw, and that that might have a bit of a influence on my opinion of it. But I think it's by far it's it's you know it escaped. It reached escape velocity to get away from the stage plays. Mm-hmm. It's completely unlike the coconuts and animal crackers. It's really its own thing. It had a, it had a, like a the way that they they kind of stack the deck to have cartoonists working on the movie. It's so unfortunate that they didn't continue that aspect of it. That they kind of went in a different direction. They almost returned. And I do like I do like Kelmer and Ruby. I like their songs a lot, and I like you know a, a lot. But I feel like Horse Feathers and Duck Soup, in a way, return to the template of the plays rather than continue to build on what Monkey Business had, which was this really filmic element that's not cannot be duplicated on stage. Whereas much of Monkey Business and Duck, or sorry, much of Horse Feathers and Duck Soup could be done on a, in a stage play. You know, it has those operetta elements to it with the characters yeah. welcoming each other by in song, you know, and here he comes, he's coming now, he's going to show up, here he is, this is who he is, you know, and that's straight out of the stage plays yeah. and returns, you know, they have this one weird anomaly of monkey business and then it goes back to the stage plays. Even though I, let me just say, I love all these movies so much. Even The Big Store, even Love Happy. I think sure. those films, you know, for all their flaws and their, their little bitty bits that you could nitpick about, which we did a little bit when we did the shows. I don't think we nitpicked terribly, but I think yeah. we, I think we were more concerned with the way the plots didn't work. This is what, so I don't think we were nitpicking. But anyhow, even those movies ha- always have things in them that are great, and, and basically that's the Marx Brothers because they're just so good. You know, there's always going to be a piano part. There's always going to be, you know, there's going to be a harp. There usually funny, is. Well, I know the duck soup kind of broke the yeah. broke the, the mold, but I mean, in most of the films, there's always going to be that, uh, you know, no matter how big store the big store gets, there is. Here you go. Chico and Harpo playing together. Yeah. In a fabulous scene, even though Go West has one of my least favorite scenes in all the movies, it which is a, the opening scene with uh, Groucho at the train station. Okay. I don't like that sequence at all because it's it's really part of the change of his character. So instead of just barging to the front of the line, which he would have done if he was in monkey business, he has to trick the passengers and be yeah. a conniver rather than be a, a you know just a strange a strangely unaware of all social all social interaction. You know, but it has Chico playing the piano with an orange. You know, so it just has these little moments where even if you're kind of like, oh, this movie, this has those moments where you're just like, oh, this is great. So we're gonna say to you, watch them all. Watch them all and watch them all again. Watch them all again. It's weird when you were talking about the, sorry to go back a little bit, talking about the UN one uh, that didn't get made. You know, that felt to me like, oh, yeah, yeah, because I'm, I'm, immediately I'm thrown back to all the different things that they would do. Sure. And it'd be like, yeah, now you get what which, what you want, which is Groucho in a, uh, an unearned place of authority. Oh, totally. And as a gangster, too, which is really interesting. Yeah, you got, first of all, you get that beat. Then you get him, yeah. like, you know, as, you know, a, another unearned place of authority and being able to make speeches. And it's like, what a great place to make a speech. Yeah. And then yeah. you 
you've got you know the guy you got Chico and he's always misunderstanding things and you know uh, malpropisms like oh that's perfect for that and then the way you're saying of like the translators having to translate uh, Harpo doing all his business is like oh that's beautiful that's yeah. exactly right you've that's uh, this is a perfect high stakes bunch of straight lace structured environment that lets them do the chaos that you miss so much and want to see yeah yeah. yeah. I'll I'll just play that in my head and just uh, and just enjoy it as an imagination experiment. Sure, and I think what's also great, really great about that is that here they have Harpo making a speech in the UN, and they are not at all tempted to have him talk. There's no, no Harpo speaks exclamation no, mark to that to that idea of that the sequence. Although what's interesting about Harpo is that he had a famous part in the stage shows called Red Speech, which he actually ruled out of the mothballs for the I think at the at the, at the circus tour. Mm-hmm. Which is as Red, his, that's his character's name in the old show. So Red speech, right. he would get up on stage, this totally mute character, and he would deliver the most beautifully eloquent speech to the audience as this character. And it was sort of unexpected. It was just come out of nowhere. He would do this sort of thing, and of course, he never did it in the movies because yeah. it doesn't work in the movies. Nope. It could work in a play where it's a no. one one once in a while thing yeah, and that kind of wows the audience. Is then it's gone. Yeah, but in the movies, you have to have that character. Be himself always, yeah. and, and then uh, who lifted that idea? Kevin Smith, <laughs> the Silent Bob. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. Silent Bob yeah. is silent through the entire movie. Yeah, and at the end, he's the one who makes the the, the profound speech. Okay, yeah, there you to go. the point where you just go, stop it. <laughs> it's enough of that. Yeah, we get it. Yeah, we get it. We get it. Yeah, okay. Sure. He only says things when it's important. I get it. Yeah, it's fine. It's better that Harpo didn't speak. Anything else, Dave, before we wrap up this podcast, our sidecast, our third sidecast? Let me just say one last thing you can. before we go. I'm going to give Red speech. Let me ask you one more question, which is what is your last thing that you wanted to say? <laughs> the last thing I wanted to say was I wanted to say a thank you to all the listeners. Mm-hmm. Thank you for participating in the show. I have loved, loved, loved hearing from all of you. I've loved your enthusiasm for the show. I've loved your enthusiasm for the Marx Brothers. And I really appreciated meeting you. Yes. And being friends with you through the medium of the podcast and and all the sort of social media things that we have. I know people poo-poo social media and tell us how terrible it is, but it's such a great connector in this way that and I feel like all the people who wrote in are, are friends of mine, and I, I appreciate that. And one last thing, I just want to thank Kelly Fred Sam for your review of, uh, of, to- of uh, Full Marks on iTunes. Super appreciate it, and it's always nice to hear from people who enjoy our shows so that is really nice and this you're the last person who can ever be thanked on full marks for your itunes review yeah though uh, if you do give a review in the future uh you can be thanked in person if you see one of us in person we that's will, true we will give you the personal thank you we'll give you a personal thank a back rub okay now you now it got weird we had to like end end it end it weird um now Though we're done with this podcast, yeah. we will keep checking our message boards, and we can still interact on there. And you know, listen, we're going to keep in touch after high school, and we'll stay <laughs> friends. And you know, and I hope you have a great summer, and even though it's winter where we are now. Yeah, I hope. Well, unless you're in Australia, yeah, then you're probably right. having a great summer. Have a great summer. Yeah, uh, our Australian friends. Um, here's how you contact us. You go to. Oh, that's right. What? Also, oh. a thanks to one of our one of our. Um, Correspondent City, Paul Hagel, who also reviewed us on uh, iTunes. I forgot Australian iTunes had a review oh, from there him. there we so go. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. It's, it was a nice review. You said nice things about us. All right. That puts you aces in my book. Excellent. You're at the duck's nuts, as my Australian friend said is a good thing to say. 
I don't know. Does that get rid of our explicit? I don't know. Do we, is that too explicit? I don't know how it works. I don't think it does. Uh, anyway, here's here's how you contact us. Go to sneakydragon.com. That is our website because we do another uh, podcast called Sneaky Dragon. And uh, there you will find every episode of this show. Underneath each episode, look underneath. Just check underneath it. There's a message board. What? Can you post? Of course you can. You can post things. Uh, we might post back. Probably will. Let's be honest. Uh, and uh, that's a good place to talk about the episodes themselves. If you want to talk to us on Facebook, we're at Sneaky Dragon on Facebook. We're on Twitter at Sneaky underscore Dragon. We're on Tumblr, SneakyDragon.tumblr.com. All good places to say hi. And then occasionally we will uh, do little tours or anniversary shows for our Sneaky Dragon shows. And you can say hi to us there. And every week we're doing a new Sneaky Dragon show. That's true. And Dave just started another show, which is not a sidecast, but is our first spinoff podcast, uh, which I think you mentioned a little earlier in this show, which is called the Sneaky Dragon Listening Party. Yes. Uh, If you enjoy music, uh, Dave did a whole bunch of mixtapes for our listeners on Sneaky Dragon in the past and uh, is going over them uh, one by one, song by song, bit by bit, uh, with his daughter, Mary. It's been a lot of fun so far. Yeah. Right. So that's fi- been we very just cute. finished our second one. So that's uh, if you're like, oh, I want to listen to something else with these guys. Well, that's a that's a good place to go. And again, uh, we really do appreciate your kind uh, listenership. This has been a real treat. Thanks for doing this with me, Dave. You're welcome. It's uh, been, this has been, been a pleasure uh, as always. Been a real pleasure as well. Uh, from Hell Kitty Studios, uh, this has been Full Marks, a Marks Brothers podcast. See you next time for whatever we do next. Oh my gosh, Ian and I are so forgetful. We forgot that we had promised to do a draw, a little prize draw, for people who wrote in questions for the show, and uh, we didn't do it during the episode, so I'm just popping in near the end to draw a name from our raffle hat. I have a little, we have a little baseball cap that we use as our as our regular uh, raffle hat, although last time we used a pants, we had some raffle pants, but this time I'm going to go back to the old raffle hat, so you can hear me, you can hear me shaking up the... The paper in the, the hat, I'm not looking inside, I have my eyes closed, I'm reaching in, I'm moving rough, uh, rustling paper, and here we go. Who is the winner? Who is the winner of this? Oops. It is Chris Griffiths. Chris, you've won. You've won a mug. That's what I've decided our our little present's going to be. It's going to be a mug. It's either it's going to be a Sneaky Dragon mug, or maybe I'll see if I can get a, a Full Marks mug for you, but, but it'll be a mug. So there you go. So please send me your address if if I if you think I don't have it, and we will get that out for you as soon as possible. All right. Well, thanks everybody for participating, sending questions. Sorry you didn't win, but congratulations to Chris. And I hope to hear from you soon, Chris. And pop us an email to uh, sneakyd at sneakydragon.com. All right, everyone. Take care. Bye. <laughs>